Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning, November 16, 843-661-0937 is our number. Morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Rev. Good morning. Uh, Without further ado, we won't spend a lot of time talking about sports and athletics and college football and whatnot, other than to say that I had a good text yesterday from Will Webster, our good friend um, over at Rivals of Store Divided. I'm excited about the annual. How many years? The oh my gosh, this is yeah. Somebody smarter than I, or more uh, recollective than I, would have to say uh, what it is. This could be about the eighth year, somewhere there, somewhere around that. We do a simulcast every Wednesday before Thanksgiving in celebration of the Clemson South Carolina football game. We do it with our tag team partner Alan Smothers, the Bad Boy of Sports Radio. Uh, We are an ESPN affiliate. That's a sister station of ours. Uh, we dabble in athletics and sports here. You know, when you think about it, I mean, I'm thinking about it yesterday a little bit. Sports has become more business. I mean, it really and truly has. Um, it goes back to my theory. And re- I mean, I am, you ready? I'm eat up with this. I mean, I am <laughs> eat up with this idea I have. And I can't get anywhere. I don't run a university. I'm not an AD. I'm not a football coach. I'm a guy who has a lot of opinions and a busy head syndrome and I love the Gamecocks, and I've watched the Gamecocks languish for so many years, well-funded, well-supported, very mediocre on, uh, on the field, and it frustrates me. So I begin thinking about, okay, what can we do differently? What aren't we doing differently? And Rev knows this. Um, I can be obsessive. I mean, I can be a pain <laughs> in the butt. I'm not uh, a guy you want to be around much when I get kind of focused on, Focus, yeah. on some of these things that, are, that matter to me. And I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the the Gamecocks need to follow some of what the Atlanta Braves have done. And, and I, you know, Rev's a big Braves fan. I'm a Braves fan. I've been a Braves fan longer than Rev, but I'm nowhere near as big a Braves fan uh, today as Rev is. Um, but, but the Atlanta Braves, and I think we talked touched on it a little bit Monday, the Braves are somewhere around 12 to 16 in salary. So they're not Texas or Texas A&M or Southern Cal or Michigan or Ohio State. They'd be the Gamecocks. But they're not the the, the least funded team in the league. They're somewhere middle of, of the pack. I mean, in all honesty, South Carolina's funding would probably be in the top 10% of all college football teams because of the SEC alliance, the SEC money, the television contract and network. So the Gamecocks are halves beyond a shadow of a doubt, but they never match performance. I mean, they've got all these amenities. They, they've done unbelievable things around the stadium with SEC money. Uh, and it's kind, of, it's kind of odd. They have an off-campus stadium. It's in an industrial area. Why did you build a stadium there? Because the Williams-Brice family gave the land. And, you know, everybody's counting pennies and, and saving a buck back then. So, But anyway, they've, um, they've spent enormous amounts of money to connect as best they can the stadium to the university to create a – uh, well, I'll give you an example. The Grove in, at Ole Miss is probably the most famous tailgating venue in all of America. Uh, they sent a an architect, uh, design architect team to Ole Miss and basically, I don't want to say copied the Grove, but took some of what they really liked about the Grove and recreated in Gamecock Park and some of the fairground parking they've done, uh, some of the plaza area. But they've done a lot of things to make it extremely fan-friendly around um, Williams-Brice. There is no doubt that Clemson has an advantage there with an on-campus stadium. I mean, it's a beautiful setting. I mean, I, you know, I don't like orange. I don't like the Tigers. But it's um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's cool when you get in the upper deck. That's where we always sit. 
as um as traveling Gamecock fans. <laughs> they put me in the last row of the upper deck. Get me as far away from that action as you possibly can. Because I got a pocket full of batteries. I'm gonna throw it at somebody. <laughs> I'm kidding. Back in the day. Anyway, um, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's a it's a picturesque setting. It's 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 mountainy. You kind of got the foothills. Uh, you got that on campus. You got the university surrounding. The Gamecocks don't have that, but they've done a lot of things to try and incorporate some of those elements to create that campusy feel and and some of the amenities associated. The one thing that they've never done is excel at football. I mean, they just I don't understand why. I've been a fan all my life. Um, they're damn good at women's basketball, but who cares? Um, I think yesterday they got the number two women's player, and people send me and my Gamecock fans send me a text. Hey, we got the number two women's player in America. So. I mean, we should never embrace being known as a women's basketball school. We should reluctantly say, well, I mean, I wish she hadn't got the number two basketball. I wish Iowa or Connecticut or somebody had gotten the number two player. But but I go back to the Braves philosophy and this aha moment. Uh, remember the moment I was reading, we got on the air one day. We're talking about the 2020 presidential election. Something didn't make sense. Something just didn't make sense. Uh, the water pipes busted. They stopped counting. You know, and then they started counting again. I'm like, damn, something doesn't make sense there. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happened. I don't have any clue what happened. But but remember when I told you I read the Fulton County Election Commission minutes and they accepted a grant from the Center for Tech and Civic Life, the Zuck Bucks? I mean, that, that's the moment you go, okay. I mean, I see clearly now money's the answer. Now what's the question? Well, when I realized that the city of it, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's Fulton County. I mean, it's basically the city of Atlanta. But the city of Atlanta had accepted a big grant from Mark Zuckerberg's uh, Center for Tech and Civic Life. Then, then the dots began becoming easier to connect. I mean, okay, you had a an unbelievable overperformance of Democrat turnout in Gwinnett and Fulton County, and you had millions of dollars given by Mark Zuckerberg to the Center for Tech and Civic Life to do what? Generate voter turnout. Well, that's that's not. I mean, that's not real complicated. That's not rocket science. Yeah. Why the Gamecocks don't win? I could get rocket sciencey. This is not. I mean, rest right. assured, those dots money, are easy. Yeah, today. money talks and bullcrap walks. At the end of the day, um, but the Braves do one thing: twelfth to sixteenth highest payroll, the third winningest baseball team in the last six years, right there with the Dodgers and and uh, Mets. I mean, the Dodgers and Yankees. I think they've won a good bit more than the Yankees have. The Red Sox, I think, would be another team, well funded, well healed, big. Big market, uh, big television contract. But the Braves pay their scouts significantly more than the league average. Ah, okay. So the Braves know that once that 26-year-old center fielder from Seattle is a free agent, they're not going to be able to match what the Mets and Yankees and Dodgers are willing to pay. But they can pay enough to be competitive. But what they can do is they can go find a Ronald Acuna or a Ozzie Albies, or some of these other kids, and they can get them for the first part of their career and build some loyalty, take good care of those players. And that's how they built the uh, the franchise. Well, I believe that the first college football team that accepts that this is not college football any longer, this is the business of football. I mean, this is the, I guess, the training ground for the, the farm system for the National Football League. And I think there will be a team Probably not South Carolina because we tend to not be cutting edge. Uh, I hate to give these Tigers ideas. They've thought of it, I'm sure. But the team that assembles an NFL front office within their college football 
coaching staff and program are going to excel. Seamless and um, seamless and integrated NIL scouting of players. I mean, imagine in the old days, you go to a high school game on Friday night with your USC or Clemson hat, and you watch this four-star receiver. Is he as good as advertised? I mean, I've seen the film. I want to see him in purpose. I mean, in in, in person. But but who is now at Clemson or South Carolina for that matter scouting players from Missouri? Texas A&M had a coaching change. The transfer portal. Kids can come and play immediately. So so who at South Carolina and Clemson are watching film of the six or seven players that are going to be available because Jimbo Fisher got let go at at, at Texas A&M? What if what if players? I mean, I'm hearing that the problem in Florida is the NIL promises made were not kept. So the the I mean, Florida's got a good roster. They're not winning games because I don't believe the kids are very excited about playing for a a university that made a deal and didn't honor that deal. So so who's scouting those players? Who's got the front office in place to evaluate that talent? I'll give you an example. Let's say that Clemson and South Carolina have a I'm just a million dollar budget. I mean, I don't have any idea what their budget is, but let's say they have a million-dollar budget. How much is an evaluator worth in making sure you don't pay too much for this player, but but this kid's a diamond in the rough, can play? I just think that's what the Braves have done successfully, and that's what some college – I think Missouri's already done it. I mean, I think Missouri is ahead of the game. I think Missouri has implemented an NFL system within their college football program. We talked about legislation they got changed that basically said, screw you, NCAA. You say our coach can't participate in some of the NIL negotiations. Our General Assembly says he can. And they fund us. The NCAA is a sanctioning body. They're lawmakers behind me that give the University of Missouri uh, higher education system money. You see where I'm headed? I just think this is a moment. In time. The Gamecocks will never, ever be able to match Alabama, Georgia, Auburn, Texas, Texas A&M in tradition. Clemson, for that matter. They'll never be able to match Clemson in tradition. But it's a new era. It's a new dawning. Everybody's learning as we go. Why not be more aggressive than anybody at building a kind of a, um, a system similar to the NFL and, and compete in the, quote, you ready? The business of college football. And if you don't believe it's a business, a university fired a coach that won a game <laughs> – Sunday and paid him $80 million to leave town. That's big business. That's business. If, if somebody says, well, it's amateur athletics. No. <laughs> I mean, we, we could have debated whether it is or not. But a university on Sunday, the day after a guy won a game, is paying a coach nearly $80 million to leave town. That ain't amateur athletics. That is uh, big business. I want to build a show uh, around a storyline. And I'm going to get Josh and Rev to participate in this, and I'm going to get our callers to participate in this. Um, we had somewhat of a disagreement debate yesterday on Ukraine, right? I mean, I went through some of the facts and data, uh, as I understand those, and I didn't trust the American media. So I went back last night and looked at some of the international media um, about what, you know, there's a reason you're not hearing a lot about Ukraine in the, uh, in the American media. We had some callers late in the show that took issue with kind of your – your thought as Ukraine's to, losing as to where, yeah, where, where they are yeah. in that, uh, and, and I, I think one of, our, one of our good callers said that he would, he would, he would, he would basically allow the loss of life of every Ukrainian to not bow to a tyrant and, and tyranny. 
and and I kind of went down this road last night. I, I went and, and tried it best I know. Um, and this is some of the international reporting. Uh, once again, I don't trust the American media to shoot it straight. I'm not saying I trust the international media, but but I don't have the reason to not trust them. I've not been misled by the international media as much as I have uh, the American media. So I went to the international media, uh, some of some of the BBC, some of the Asian news. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, the the uh, Francais. Uh, I think uh, there was some media. I, I read a couple of articles in a French newspaper, uh, a German publication. Ukraine's receiving support from 31 nations. Uh, they're getting direct military aid and assistance from 31 nations. Um, but it's still, it's such a mismatch. And I had a couple of people tell me yesterday, well, I mean, we were a ragtag bunch of renegades, outlaws, and hayseeds taking on the British Empire. I mean, yeah, France was helping, not because they loved the idea or concept of America, but rather despised the British Empire. I mean, it would have been similar. I, I don't know that they called anybody a superpower back then. It would have been more of an empire. Um, but but I want to go through some of this, and I, and I, I think it's fair. I mean, you got communism, you got tyranny, you you got brutality, you've got a sovereign nation being invaded. Um, and I said my adherence to a biblical worldview shaped and molded the way I saw the Israeli um, Gaza or Hamas conflict. Uh, really, the, the the Israeli there is no misunderstanding of Hamas and Israel. One's a terrorist, the other's not. But there is a dispute about Palestine or Palestinians and and the Jewish state. Uh, let, let's take a break. I want to come back and go through some statistics. And I stand by uh, what I said yesterday. I'm more convinced today than I was yesterday that Ukraine is u- losing badly. I mean, they're they're getting. Just, I mean, it's 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 sad. I mean, it, it's their nation is getting decimated, devastated with a tremendous loss of human life. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Okay, Josh, you want your own radio show, do you? Yep. Okay. Seems like I've already got one. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to sort of, and, and, and I think the listeners appreciate another generation's opinion. I really and truly do, and and I think you acquit yourself well when given the opportunity to express your opinion. In fact, you acquit it well enough that I don't give you as many opportunities because I'm a self-preservationist. <laughs> You'd probably be cheaper than I. And I'm getting, <laughs> a younger guy they get out. You know the story in corporate America, don't you? I they do. move the older guy out and replace mm-hmm. him with a younger guy because they save a buck or two or or three, and then one day you would be the older guy and they'd shove you out of the door, give you a have to go watch and say, have a good day. Um, <laughs> such is life. Yeah, such is life. You're right. Um, don't let the old man in. Isn't that Toby Keith's new song? Yeah. Isn't that Toby Keith? I mean, it, it's a country song. Kind yeah, of taking the country music yep. world by storm. Yep. Yep. Don't let the old man in. Mm-hmm. How many of you have heard that? And I'm talking to you in your car. You getting dressed this you morning. You said that it was profound. When it you is heard incredibly it. profound. He wrote the song for Clint Eastwood. Uh, Eastwood's still producing movies. I think Eastwood announced recently that he's producing his last movie at the age of 93. And I think Toby Keith spent a little time with Keith East, uh, Clint Eastwood and asked about, you know, how do you stay motivated that long to work? I mean, obviously you're financially secure. Why do you still get up and try to be as productive as you can? And he says, don't let the old man in. I mean, if you sit idle, if you take it easy, the old man gets in next thing you know, you're in a hospital somewhere with something wrong and you're in a, you know where I'm, I mean, you got to be sharp, got to be active and sharp. And I've made 
uh, a pretty significant commitment uh, to that. But we, we may play that today. Don't let the old, it is a bit prophetic to me and profound, especially when you're getting toward the, the age that the old man knocks a little harder than he normally does. Josh doesn't even know the old man. Rev and I beat off the old man every day. Like, get away from me, old man. Leave me alone. Let, let me be. You mean it's only 7.30? I can't go to bed at 7.30. Old men go to bed at 7.30, but it's dark at 4.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> I woke up this morning at, uh, anyway, 3.15 again. Again? And can't go back to sleep. And the cat looks at me like, what's going on, man? I mean, it's a different routine. I've adjusted. Why have uh, Why have you not? <laughs> so let's do this, Josh. It's pretty bad if your cat adjusted to the time change and you have. Well, now my cat's a cat. You know how they'll, they'll kind of make do. Give them oh, yeah. just a little while. Most independent animal in the, in the world. I mean, I'm serious. A cat is the most independent animal in the world. Dogs give, but dogs need, right? Cats don't give much. But subsequently, cats don't need much. <laughs> you know, just um, right. just let me in my house when when I knock on the door, or in Rev's case, when I take my snout and and kind of slam the door open so it slams back closed. Um, that's Rev's call or Rev's cue. To, mine's got a window seal. You know, and he doesn't. I'm serious. My cat does this on purpose. I, I'm fixing something to eat, and I got my I got my my Diet Pepsi. I got my plate of food. I'm about to sit down and watch some tube, and there's no cat at the windowsill. Because I check to make sure oh, I don't want to sit down. And then, I, well, as soon as I sit down and take the first bite of food, there's the cat on the windowsill. And what do I do? I cuss every breath, but I let the cat in. And one of these days, I'm just going to let the cat stand there and just look at mm-hmm. me eat. Because I'm, I'm convinced he waits until I sit down. And then he just, okay, he sat down. He took a bite of food. Now would be a good time to goof him up. Yep. So so I'm let's jump on the windowsill. Let him know. My needs are yeah. a priority. Let me back in, in in my home. But you're right. Our our, our cat is funny because he figured it out. You know, we have a screen door on the back deck, and he'll pull it open with his paw, kind of get in between it, kick it with his leg to make it go way open, and then jump out of the way so it goes slam. Get your attention. And that's your cue. Yeah. To let him in his house. And what do we do? Yeah, you let him in his Get house. Get up and let him in. No question about it. <laughs> so, Josh, you didn't give many opinions yesterday on the Ukrainian-Russian situation. You were not uh, you, you were not very audible. You didn't have a lot to say about what you believe and suspect. It's clear that you've said about what I've said in our intervention mm-hmm. uh, or not. Should we or should we not? I think you're okay with sending a little bit of military armaments. We're part of NATO. We're one of those 31 nations that have helped or aided or assisted um, Ukraine. I don't know that I'm totally opposed to that. Uh, but if there is some dilapidated fighting equipment that is all cataloged and and then will never be used in defense of American liberty or freedoms, then, then I, I'm okay with that. But that's about it. Uh, but that That's about it. Now, the, the caller toward the end of the show yesterday said everything we're sending Ukraine is old and outdated. That's not the case. I mean, some of what we're sending Ukraine is old and outdated, but we're sending F-16s. I mean, they're 30-year-old jets, but they've been retrofitted. They've been upgraded. Revenue better than I. He has a pilot license. If I'm not mistaken, Rev, you can have a 1975 airplane worth 100000 but you could also have a 1975 airplane worth 500000 because of all the the, the technological technological sure. and automation and meticulously maintained the, the and, updates, and, right? and upgraded yeah, some of the sure. updates and instrumentation. Upgrades. So, so from what I read yesterday, 
some of the jets that were in Denmark, and we offloaded some jets in Denmark, F-16s, that had been um, upgraded, updated, some of the technology. They were about 30-year-old jets, but the technology was only about three or four. It's, it's the next to last generation of technology. It's not the latest and greatest, but you don't have to turn the prop with your finger to, to crank them either. I mean, it, it's somewhere. It's better than about anything Ukraine has, and it's probably on par with about anything uh, that Russia has. So we're not sending uh, j- just a bunch of old, worn-out weaponry. We're, we're sending some pretty nice stuff. M- maybe not, once again, the latest and greatest in technology. We may be sending Israel our latest and greatest, but we're not sending Ukraine uh, a bunch of trucks that won't crank and planes that won't fly. That's just not the case. Uh, $100 billion, north of $100 billion in military um, assistance. So, so, Josh, what do, when it comes to tyranny, mm-hmm. you're opposed. Yeah. When it comes to communism or capitalism, you're a capitalist. Yes. When it comes to one nation evading a sovereign nation, you're opposed. That's right. Okay. But but where do you stand on, I mean, Josh, got to get a call here. Where, where, do, where do we stand? And I'm going to tell you where I stand. Um, and I think the illustration I used yesterday is, is somewhat appropriate. Um, I'm not bowing to tyranny but under certain circumstances. I mean, if someone walks out of a dark alley with a 38 points in my head and I'm convinced that person will pull the trigger, it's not whether I've got $100 in my wallet or a million dollars in my wallet. I'm giving them my wallet. So I have succumbed to tyranny. I mean, it's not governmental tyranny. It's not a nation evading another nation, but the concept of me giving up, I did. I mean, do, do I take my elbow and knock the gun? And do I do, do some kind of spin move that I watched in, in an MMA fight? No, I don't. I give him my wallet because I want to live to see another day. The point I tried to make yesterday, I'm not defending anything Putin did. We can argue about what America should do in an interventionist fashion. But there's no way that as a leader of a nation, I would allow every person in my country to be killed because I refused to succumb to tyranny. What do you stand, Josh? I completely agree. I mean, you know, we had we had a couple callers call in yesterday and uh, give me liberty or give me death under all or any circumstances. And to me, you know, it, we were talking last week a lot about being pragmatic, which I do agree with you on. I, I think that you, in certain instances, you have to accept the situation. And obviously, like, you know, Jeff called in yesterday. He brought up several examples of the French helping the Americans during the Revolutionary War, Viet, the, the Vietnamese versus the Americans in the 60s and 70s. and The Afghans and the Russians? Right, yeah, where you have these smaller forces defeating these larger forces. But it's more co- like though each of those examples, there's intricate, simple, like, factors that contributed to those downfalls. And we have to understand there's a big difference between the Russians invading a country that's on their border versus like the Americans invading like an I like the Vietnamese country that's in the middle of the ocean pretty much. Um uh do you do you get what I'm saying? Sure. Like and well, they're, when they're, at they're this invading point, a country that was formerly a part of their former country. Right. And the the reasoning is different. So, for example, Russia, I, I believe that Russia wants Ukraine because of its connection to the Black Sea. Russia does not want to 
vaporize the Ukrainians. But if they feel that that's in their best interest, they might do it. So I think that Russia is actually being quite humanitarian, as as humanitarian as they could be in given a war. This, in a war, yes. Um, you know, like we did not invade uh, Vietnam because we hate the Vietnamese people and we wanted them dead. We did it, you know, for all the you know communism, blah blah blah, Russia, Russian expansion at the time. So so it's very complex and very different. And I think that given the amount of people in Ukraine that have died. It is at this point in time more noble to surrender because I don't think that Russia is going to, uh, you know, they're not the Nazis where they're just trying to wipe out the Ukrainian people. That's not why they're invading. And one of the callers did call in and say that where the Ukrainian people were actually mistreating the Russian citizens in Ukraine on, a, I think it was their northern border. Um, and, and those Russians were crying out to the Russian government to help them. So, so it's, it's it's more complex than good guys versus bad guys. But, but hold on to that. Let's take a break. Don't want to get too far behind this morning. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. If you really go back to the Afghan-Russia conflict, when, 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 and, I mean, the United States viewed the conflict in Afghanistan as kind of a part of the Cold War struggle. Um, we supported... I think we used the Pakistani government. I don't hold me to this, but I think the Pakistani government was our vessel of which we supported some of the anti-Soviet guerrilla war. I mean, it, it would have been the Mujahideen, but they were kind of the um, the rebels that were taking on um, the Soviets. If you remember in Charlie Wilson's war, the um, the Mujahideen, the Afghan rebels, were fairly helpless against some of the Soviet helicopter fire until the Russians, excuse me, until the Americans through the Pakistani government, provided them with um, some of these, what, what would you call, Rev, uh, surface-to-air missiles, some of these rocket launchers that would shoot down over the range. And that's really what they got really involved in. Somebody negotiated a deal, and that's where Charlie Wilson got involved in. Um, and that's why it was called the movie Charlie Wilson's War. It's an interesting, I mean, it's movies, and Superman don't fly. I get that. But it is a um, kind of an interesting articulation of, um, of what happened in Afghanistan, but I just there, there's nothing that I've ever read that convinces me Putin wants to be Hitler. And the majority of decisions made in Washington today are made by senior members of the U.S. Senate. They're relics of the Cold War, right? But they're, they're and they're funded by the military-industrial complex. And and I guess the debate we had yesterday, and and I you know if I'm in charge of a nation, if somebody has duly elected me president of country X, there is no way in hell that I would send every 25-year-old person in my country to fight for a war that I knew eventually ended in some sort of peace deal. There's just no way. I mean, I went back and looked, guys. The Russian army estimates at about 1.4 million. The Ukrainian army, and this is probably generous, about 500,000 total aircraft. You ready? The Russians have 4,182. The Ukrainians have 312. Total helicopters. The Russians have 1,531. The Ukrainians have 113. Fighter craft. The Russians have about four, no, excuse me, 773. The Ukrainians, 69. Um, transport aircraft. The Russians have 444. Um, the Ukrainians have 26. Um, inactive soldiers. The Russians have 830,000. 
The Ukrainians have 200,000. Um, they're going to run out of young Ukrainians to get killed. And I just think it's your it's incumbent upon your leadership to realize, look, we're getting slaughtered. A bad war is not as good as a good peace deal. And let's cut some deal. We're going to give up 148 acres of land. I'd rather not. That sucks. We don't. We it's, it's our nation. It's our sovereign land. But how many young men are you willing to allow to be slaughtered in the name of uh, you know a hopeless and hapless endeavor? That's the point I put on the table. And Jeff said he's willing instead of bowing to tyranny, he's willing to allow every single young man who's will ready, willing, maybe not even willing, ready, willing, and able. I mean, they're drafting in Ukraine. I mean, they're signing up 55-year-old men now to send a fight in war. They're running out of soldiers because they're losing not a single day. Since February 1, have they not lost less than 100 of their armed servicemen? So somebody comes to Zelensky today and says, and he says, how many we lose today? 212. Tomorrow, somebody comes. How many we lose? 512. Uh, the next day, uh, 164. The next day, um, 216. The next day, 412. I mean, how long do you allow? How much territory are we taking over? Well, we're not. We actually lost uh, 12 acres. We lost this city. We lost that city. It's in, it's your response. It's, it's your moral obligation to, at some point in time, consider the loss of human life. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. You're on the air. You know, um, but is Jeff willing to write a check or willing to go over there and fight? I've, I've got some uh, leftist Democrats that I've trained, and I was and they were some of them were talking yesterday, and they're saying that same thing. Breeze. We got to stand up the evil. We got to fight. We got to fight. I said, "Well, how, how willing are you to fight? How much money are you willing to write a check? I mean, should everybody be forced to write a check to stand up the, the evil, or should the people who just want to write a check stand up the evil? I mean, and again, I don't believe you ever once said that the citizens of the Ukraine are not allowed to fight for their freedom." I believe what you're possibly saying is it's futile, but if they want to do it, there's certainly nothing we can do about it. But the fact of the matter is we don't have the money to pay for them to fight for freedom. So they'll have to figure it out on their own, is basically, I think, the bottom line. But here's a question I have today. So McDonnell Douglas and the, and the military industrial complex is going to make, has made billions off of this war. And then they're going to make millions more off of us replenishing the supply. But is McDonnell Douglas and the rest of the all-military industrial complex, are they going to pay out of their profits to rebuild the Ukraine? Are they going to pay? Who's going to rebuild Gaza once you take it and destroy it? Somebody's going to have to rebuild it. Who's going to do it? Is it going to be the people that actually caused the destruction? Hell no. Not one, not one bit. You know, and so... That's the thing that really chaps my ass. I said, these guys get rich off of these wars, and then you and I, again, will be left holding the tab. Because I guarantee you American tax dollars will be part of the package involved in in rebuilding Ukraine. I don't know what Russia's role will be in it, but I mean, you know, and you're absolutely right yesterday. Why did we stand in the way of the peace talks? Why? What would, what was, why, why would we be against peace? 
Why would the Democrats that says give give peace a chance want to stand in the way of peace? Why would the Republicans? This whole thing is corrupt. Every one of these wars are corrupt. Thank you, Briggs. Appreciate that. And and when you think about it. The international community, I mean, you listen to these words, the international community will rebuild um, Ukraine. Once this is over, once the dust settles and Russia gets whatever property they get, because that's where we're headed. I mean, some of the European allies or the Western allies are beginning to encourage Ukraine to accept some plea bargain. I mean, that's NBC News. And you're not talk. We're not talking about the, the the spring offensive. We're not talking about taking back land. We're not talking about um, defeating the Russians any longer. I mean, there, there's a there's a lot of information out there available in the international media, and I think American media is not telling uh, because there'd be a lot of public discontent. Uh, a lot of the public would want to know. Well, I thought the Ukrainians were winning, and that's why you needed another hundred billion dollars. When did you realize that Ukraine was not winning? When did you realize that another $100 billion was not going to help? Um, I mean, can Ukraine defeat Russia? Yes. Yes. If America sent 50,000 troops and Germany sent 50,000 troops and Italy sent 25,000 troops and Canada sent 10,000 troops and Greece sent 10,000 troops and we had a million well-prepared fighting men and women on the ground in Ukraine, hell yeah. I mean, you could push Russia back into Russia. Is that America first? I mean, is that what Americans want? Because that could happen. I mean, there's there's quite a conceivable. I mean, that that is a concept. Maybe that's what some of the internationalists and globalists are for: to put American boots on the ground, to put German boots on the ground, to put Italian boots on the ground, to put Greek boots on the ground, and let's put Russia back in its place. Let's secure that border in Ukraine, no matter what the cost, no matter how many men and women who don't live in Ukraine have to go and preserve their sovereignty. I mean, that could happen, but is, is, is does America have the appetite for that? Do the Germans have the appetite for that? Because if they don't, Ukraine's going to run out of men and women to fight. And that's inevitable. So why not broker a peace deal now and save lives? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. A couple of callers held on. Let's go there. Robert in Florence. Good morning, Robert. You're on the air. Yes, I was just wondering if um, somebody can explain to me whatever happened to American citizens' rights. We we talk about funding Ukraine and doing all this help around the world and all these refugees and everything come across our border, which I'm I'm no pro or against, or it just needs to be managed better. But it seems like American citizen rights are secondary to all the people coming into our country, they get all these special benefits and everything else. But if you're a citizen of the United States these days, we get less. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I mean, government is famous for finding some line of connection. We got to fund this because at the end of the day, it's essential to the Americans' safety and security. I mean, that's kind of a broad statement. The follow-up should be how. I mean, I could make an argument that the Golden Gate Bridge is important to my personal commute. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, a, there's a Walmart truck that has to go over the Golden Gate Bridge. If the Walmart truck can't go across the Golden Gate Bridge, then Walmart can't get the products. And if they can't get the products in California, it may um, disrupt their supply chain. And the next thing you know, they're having to send an, an extra truck there. That's a truck they could send 
to South Carolina. Uh, you know, I need my stuff at Walmart. Walmart's not doesn't have my stuff because once again, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it, it's, but, it, but they ha- they haven't done a good job well, of I mean, selling that. You can't sell that rev. You can't sell the fact that there's nothing. And here's the question you've got to ask, and Josh touched on it today. I've heard over and over and over again from conservative friends of mine that you got to be careful with Putin. He'll do what Hitler did. What in Putin's past leads you to believe that? I mean, g- give me some example in Vladimir Putin's past where he has said or operated as if he wanted to dominate the world. I mean, he's a communist. I mean, I, fundamentally, I'm opposed to communism because I believe in the personal, you know, personal exceptionalism more than the collective. But but communism isn't illegal. I mean, if a country we said chooses we have elected to be, officials in this country sure, that I mean, lean communist, 58% right? Fifty-eight percent of the Democrat voters in America today would rather live in a communist system than than a um a free enterprise. I mean, that, that polls clearly show that. I mean, I've seen it as low as fifty-two. I've seen it as high as fifty-eight. But the majority of Democrat voters in America today ascribe to the notions or the theories of of communism. But but I just think we've got to ask these questions. We've historically been a nation that if someone with a nice suit and a $100 haircut says, you know, that Putin guy reminds people a lot of Hitler, and nobody says in what fashion, how? W- what about Putin reminds you of Hitler? He's a dictator. He's ruthless. Okay. I mean, are we going to oppose every ruthless dictator in the world? Or are we charged with active, becoming more active when American safety and security is at risk? If, if we're concerned about American safety and security, we would arm the border. I mean, we, right. we, we would, we would send right. our men and women to the border. How many of you are more concerned about a loved one dying of some communist aggression led by Vladimir Putin than, than, you know, uh, an opiate laced with fentanyl. How many Americans died last year because of communism's march? How many people died in America last year because of fentanyl? But we've got the most porous border we've ever had, and we seem to be so heightened and hyper alert on what's happening in Ukraine and Russia until, until the bill of goods we sold the American public don't seem to be coming true. And then we kind of move along. We move on to something else. So, see, one of the great, I guess one of the great moments in American history that we're living in, and, and this goes back to talk radio, I guess, being a large contributor to this. Um, one of my priorities, one of my priorities to convince you to be skeptical of your government, it's not why I wake up every day. I mean, I wake up every day with a real cool life, and I am blessed, and I am fortunate, and I know that, and I thank my lucky stars to be living the life that I lead. It ain't perfect, but it's damn good. But one of my priorities behind this microphone is to convince you not to take your government at your word or at their word, to be highly skeptical of what they say and do. And it's working. I mean, it's absolutely working. There are high, there, there are more and more Americans today that just don't trust their government. And I could tell people until I'm blue in the face to not trust your government. If government proves to be trustworthy, I look like a nut. I mean, I like a whack job and a conspiracy theorist. But I tell people to be skeptical of what you're hearing. Be skeptical of what they're saying. Be skeptical of what they're trying to convince you of. And then it proves to be untrue. I'd, I'd be a little bit nervous about this vaccine. He's a nut. He's a conspiracy theorist. 
I mean, Pfizer made that vaccine. This is not about profit. This is about safety. This is about medical advancements. Well, I mean, two years later, okay, look at the postmortems done. I mean, they're not in the mainstream because the mainstream narrative was what? Remember the day when somebody said the vaccine has no side effects? And I'm thinking to myself, every, every medicine has side effects. I mean, every medicine ever created, there's a list of side effects. You know, don't drive forklifts with this if you're drinking. <laughs> I mean, don't operate heavy equipment if you take this. I mean, there's side effects to every medication except the vaccine. I mean, they get expert after expert after expert saying publicly on the record, this vaccine has no side effects. Yeah, we did it in 10 months, and it normally takes 10 years, but it doesn't have any side effects. But, but if I got behind the mic and said over and over and over again to Josh and Rev and our millions and millions of listeners, be skeptical of your government, but every time I said that, the government did exactly what they said they were going to do, and things turned out exactly the way they said they were going to turn out, I'd be a nut. I'd have no credibility at all. But when I say don't trust your government, and they prove to be untrustworthy over and over and over again, sooner or later, those forces converge, and we have somewhat of a political revolution. And that's what we're living in today. And at the center of this revolution is a burning, an intense distrust that people have for their federal government. Let's take a break. I know we got a caller. We'll get to that as soon as we get back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. You're on. Uh, good morning. I, I, uh, war is a horrible thing, and the, and the thing about them is it's easy to start them. It's hard to get them stopped. And it, I, uh, I don't know what people are talking about that, but just to put things into perspective, in World War II, the second siege of Sebastopol campaign, uh, they estimated two million casualties. The low side is like one and a quarter million. Uh, and that was just for Sebastopol. And uh, I, y'all were talking about how many deaths are too many for what? I, that I'm glad I'm not in the position where I have, actually have to make that call. But uh, should the should the North have given up the fight after Gettysburg, the terrible loss of life at Gettysburg, because that was. Uh, Really, uh, kind of a that that was a watermark in uh, in the battle. Why didn't they just write a treaty right then? Well, I think we we're glad that they didn't, and the North finally prevailed. But um, it would be a much different world if that had happened. And the the thing about uh, sometimes the little guy wins. It seems like Afghanistan, no matter what. They're going to fight anyone that comes in there that's not Afghani, and if they are Afghani, they may fight them too. And um, these these powers, uh, China's ranked as like the number two or number three uh, military power in the world. Well, I I have no doubt they're dangerous, but uh, I recall after Vietnam, after we got kicked out of Vietnam. Uh, the Chinese came down there and were going to take over Vietnam, and they kind of drew back a nub, hit a buzzsaw with the North Vietnamese, didn't want any sort of Chinese rule for some reason. 
So sometimes a little guy can dissuade the big guy if he thinks he's going to get too badly hurt. But uh, my thing about this Ukraine and this Israeli thing, I don't think either one of these uh, wars needed to happen. I think they could have been stopped if we had competent people in the White House. And I was, I was watching Blinken and Biden, and Blinken looked genuinely scared sitting at the table with the Chinese to me. He just – his body language and the way he was gulping every few seconds, it just made me uh, think that – he realizes that he's way over his head. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Let, let, let's take what Mike, the, the point that I've tried to make over and over and over again. Okay, I got real clear politics up, Riff. You see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, to validate for you. You see it. Yep. Okay. Uh, I got a Quinnipiac national poll. General election. Trump 48, Biden 46. At a five-way race, Trump's 40, excuse me, Trump's 38, Biden's 35, Kennedy 17, Stein 3, West 3. That's a data point. I mean, that's, is it fact? Yeah. Now, does that reflect the actual election? We don't know. We don't have any idea. But that is a factual poll. Quinnipiac called or contacted or communicated a question to a sample number of voters. They responded accordingly, and out of that comes a data point. Quinnipiac is saying that in the general election, head-on-head, mano-a-mano, Trump beats Biden two percentage points. You, you discuss that, and that, that frames the question. Do you trust the poll? Could be a question. Do you believe that they oversampled Republicans or Democrats? Um, was enthusiasm included as a part of this? I mean, there, there are a lot of debates to, about have, uh, to have about that data, but the data's there. I mean, if people know the name Quinnipiac. They are a polling company. Are they good? Are they bad? Had a good cycle, had a bad cycle. But you frame that argument on that data point. Josh can't say, well, Quinnipiac didn't do a poll. And that poll didn't have Trump up to. Let's delve off into the hypothetical. Should you or should you not have gone to war? What data point do you use? Should you or should you not surrender and and, and agree to a peace deal? What data point or data point? You see where I'm headed? That's why you elect leadership. Leadership makes the conscious decision of what is best for the people he has a responsibility or she has a responsibility for governing over. So I'm not arguing that I'm sure Ukraine should agree to a peace deal. I'm going over some data points. The pre-war population of Ukraine was 45 million. There are 16 million Ukrainians displaced around the world. They've left. They're refugees in other lands. There are 9.5 million people working. The economy in Ukraine is about half what it was prior to Russia invading. There are, since February, we don't know the total number of lost. Some of the international community is saying 200,000 people. We don't know the number, but they've, um, NATO has said that over 55,000 Ukrainians have died since February 1, and they've not had a single day since February 1 that less than 100 people have, have been killed by the Russian forces. Those are the data points that I would base my argument on. I'm not boots on the ground. I'm not Zelensky. I'm not making a decision on behalf of an entire nation. But when I read those data points, it seems to me that they're having big issues holding off the bigger, stronger Russians. And if I could say, uh, I don't mean to like pivot the argument in a way, 
But I, I, I was just thinking about, I think it's kind of funny how we have all these people that are so afraid of Russian expansionism. They're like, well, what if, if he invades Ukraine, then what about Poland? What about all of Europe? Well, they don't seem to be concerned about uh, the African invasion going on right now with all the, and, and keep in mind, these, it is pretty much an invasion because you have all these immigrants coming from Africa, from the Middle East, and they are setting up colonies. They are not assimilating to German society, to Polish society. They're creating their own little towns where they speak their language, and they're not, they're not assimilating to those. So really, it's the same thing. If anything, I, and this is just me, I, if I were a Polish person, I would probably rather be more okay with Russian occupation than African occupation, because at least Russia is somewhat civilized. Well, and, and to, to, to try and argue that this is humanitarian-based, that the, uh, the, the, yeah. the Americans are motivated by humanitarianism and doing the right thing, I know. I mean, th- this is an opportunity to weaken Russia. Here's what I believe. You ready? And, and again, you- back to the fact that they have not sold the argument. That's part of the problem. Sure. Well, I mean, okay, selling the argument. But, but how do you sell an argument when people don't trust what you say? I mean, I believe that the majority of decisions made about foreign policy are vetted by the military-industrial complex. I don't sure. believe that senators vote on a on a foreign policy bill without running it by the military-industrial complex first. That's how their bread is buttered. I mean, how many former senators and House members and generals, for that matter, how many enlisted men, formerly enlisted men, work for the military-industrial complex today? And I'm not blaming the military-industrial complex, but they're not humanitarian-oriented. They're not in this to, to make sure Ukraine is able to defend themselves. They're in it for money. It's about money. It's always about money. Follow the money. Not some of the time, not most of the time, but rather all of the time. And, and America, the military-industrial complex and American foreign policy is not about humanitarianism. It's, you know, it's, it's chits. I mean, it's, 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 it's horse trading. It's bartering. It's, it's negotiating. And, and the military industrial complex sees an opportunity to weaken Russia and make a bunch of money. And there will be American contractors. You'll hear the word, the international community is going to step up and help Ukraine rebuild its infrastructure. 75% of the international community's funding will come from where? The American taxpayer. I mean, that's the way this plays out. So the American military-industrial complex had a hand in tearing the country all to hell. The American taxpayer will fund the majority of the international community's commitment to build Ukraine back. It's about money. It's always about money. Let's go to the phone. Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Rick. You're on. Hey, good morning, sir. Listen, Ken, I'd like to take exception to your comment, but the majority of Democratic voters are communists. Um, you know, I've done a lot of time teaching economics and government. But but I, I want to stop you. That, that's not my comment. That's a poll. Several polls out there say right. that the majority okay. of Democrat voters would rather live in a country governed by communists than capitalists. Okay. Well. There's about know, eight polls, and all are north of 50%. The lowest is 52. The highest is 58. Well, the United States is a mixed economy. I don't think anybody wants to live in a pure capitalist economy. Like you, I probably like the idea that my pharmaceuticals have been inspected or regulated. 
Same thing with my food. Um, I think anytime you start swearing allegiance to a pure system all in, it becomes a suicide pact pretty, you know, pretty rapidly. Like yourself, you from Pamplico. Um, during the New Deal, the Rural Electrification Act said if you live at the end of a one-mile dirt road, in order to get a monopoly in that area, the power company has to sell you power at the same kilowatt-hour price that somebody living in an apartment complex with 500 families, even though it's a lot cheaper for them to run the lines into the apartment. That's socialism, and I don't see anybody complaining about that. But when you start getting about purity of a system, now you talked about Putin. Putin is a KGB thug. That was the way he was raised up. And it's not communism there, it's totalitarianism. The Soviet Union was a totalitarian state. Nazism under Hitler was national socialism. It was socialist in economics, but it was totalitarian in government. And I don't really see anybody wanting that. What? So, so you're saying they don't understand what communism is? I'm saying I'm seeing the word communist thrown around like a sledgehammer by both sides. And right, I'm thinking it's a convenient sledgehammer to throw, but communism is an economic system. Totalitarianism is the way communism was enforced in the Soviet Union. And, and, and Rick, I'll agree with you, and I've said this over the airways, I think people like me, and I'll include myself in this, I'll, I'll self-incriminate, I believe people like me were raised up. I mean, my father was a self-made business guy. So I romanced about capitalism. I looked at capitalism as more of an idol than an economic theory. And I'll agree that capitalism has to have guardrails. I mean, you can't let it be the wild, wild. I mean, capitalism in theory is okay, but you've got capitalists participating, and, and they're full of sin. They're full of greed and fear and all these other humanistic traits and characteristics we bring to the table the one thing that I'll probably disagree with you, the theory of communism basically says that the common good is more important than personal successes. I mean, would you agree to that? That um, that as a priority, the community that does good, if everybody does good, is better than winners and losers. I agree with that. See, and, and I'm opposed to that. No, I, I agree I, with your definition. Okay, and I, I believe that, that most Democrats believe that. I believe that most Democrats think everybody should finish the race at about the same time. Well, okay, um, equality by, yeah. Well, I mean, it would be, um, it would be a, I mean, it, it, equality I, of opportunity, well, I mean, they want equality of outcome. Yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and it would probably be collectivism more than it would communism, because I don't think the majority of Democrats want, you know, state-controlled, in other words, the, the state control of the means of production, and that's by definition what communism is. Thank you, Rick. We got to take a break. Kind of an interesting uh, perspective there. That is interesting because, um, I, I mean, I've said that on the air many times. I am guilty of treating capitalism as an idol and not an economic theory. I believe that capitalism is, is unbelievably ah, successful at creating opportunities, financial opportunities of prosperity. Um, but, but I do believe that the majority of Democrats today ascribe to the notion of instead of having winners and losers, big winners and big losers, let's have everybody win a little bit and those that lose only lose just a little bit. I mean, I, I, I do. I think that most Democrats would sign up for that. Take a break. 
back in a few. 843-661-0937. Drew McKissick will be with us at 805, and we're going to start officially the draft Drew McKissick for RNC chair. I'm going there with him. Vivek said yeah. it. I'm going to say yeah. it. Vivek's, yeah. Vivek said it loud and clear. Yeah, he did. Uh, Drew McKissick needs to be right now, today, the RNC chair. Let's go to the phone. David in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, David. You're on. Good morning, y'all. How you doing? Good morning. <clears throat> All right. You know, to continue this talk about, about Putin, um, you know, somebody needs to, or I say somebody, I mean, hindsight's always wishful thinking because it's too far gone now, but at this point, when they keep talking about spending more and more money that, that we don't have, and again, we're paying the lion's share for it, if, if, as you've said countless numbers of times, but what is the ultimate goal? Again, what's the ultimate goal, not with Ukraine, but dealing with Putin? Because I, I guess we can all agree that Putin is the central uh, problem in all of this fiasco that's going on. But but what do they want to do with him? Do, do you want him... Uh, just out of power? Do you want him out of Ukraine? Do, do you want him kind of neutered? Um, do you want him dead? What 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 is the ultimate outcome? Because that dictates what the solution is going to be. You know, and I mean, from an economic standpoint, if he's not strong, like we talked about yesterday, as far as being able to export gas and oil, then that takes his, that takes his money. And if he doesn't have enough money to cause mayhem and mischief, you know, you should uh, maybe turn the spigots back on over here. Um, I know the United States government has a law that we can't kill foreign leaders, but between MI6 and the CIA, uh, the billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars that we've already spent, I think they could have found some uh, rogue military people or some dissident groups or somebody. Somebody could have found somebody in Mother Russia paid him a few billion dollars to say, hey, uh, why don't y'all make this guy go away? You know, that would have been, to me, that would have been a better uh, better way to spend the money, a lot less death, a lot less destruction. You know, I, I just, uh, again. But didn't you, like, ju- didn't you just nail it? Didn't you just say a better way to spend the money, a lot yes, less sir. death, a lot less destruction? See, my argument is, and this is such a, a crazy way to say it, but I believe it. War is profitable. It is. Disease is profitable. The biggest business in the world is sickness, disease, and war. So so yeah. why would you want to send? Let's say that we didn't have um we didn't have a, a law prohibiting the US government from assassinating a foreign leader that we felt was a threat uh to our safety and security. It's it's not the military industrial complex would never go for that. No. We need to fight three and four and five year wars that cost four and five hundred billion dollars so they can continue to amass the enormous profits they I believe that with every fiber of my body. That's exactly right. And and again and until but again, you know, you can't get this out. We can call and we can talk we can talk about it on the radio, but, but until the national news media gets through to the Seinfeld public and explains to them how things are going it's going to be a hard thing to sell. You know, you've got you've got people in levels and in, in positions of authority that just keep this going on. And again, the, the the biggest way for the United States to regain control of the world, and I, I shouldn't say it that way, to to make an effort to keep the peace in the world, to be because the right steadying now, force and north star uh, of exactly. the planet Earth. I mean, I'll agree with that. 
is to be an economic superpower like we used to be. But we've given all of our manufacturing to China. We're $30 trillion in debt and growing every minute that we talk about this. And nobody respects us anymore. And we have no leg to stand on. We keep saying, we're going to send you this, or we're going to send you that, we're going to send you this. It doesn't matter if you could cough up $200 billion, $300 billion worth of hardware and munitions to send to Ukraine if they don't have the people to do it. Just like you said yesterday, they're slowly killing off the population, and they don't have anybody to fight the war. And again, what's the alternative? Do you want to march to Moscow and kill Putin? Lindsey Graham would like for you to do that and bring him ahead on the platter. But, or, or do you just want to push him back across the border? You know, what, what is the goal? Nobody's, nobody has said or, or made the case what the goal is. When you have a goal, then you can formulate a plan and try to sell the plan. And if everybody's on agreement, then you, then you execute it. Well and said. That- well, and, and think about this. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Think about this, guys. He, he, he brought up the Seinfeld watcher. How many Seinfeld watchers were told two years ago that if the international community will step up and provide the munitions and, and, and fighting gear, the, the equipment, the arsenal that the Ukrainians need, they can win. And the Ukrainian flags were up everywhere. The Ukrainian bumper stickers and the Ukrainian uh, profiles on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. Um, what do those people think now? I mean, now they've got, they've replaced the Ukrainian flag with the Israeli flag. There's another conflict. The media's told them this is more important uh, than the other. But that's the level of engagement it takes to be the superpower we are. I mean, you can't, I mean, you can because we do. You, you've got this complacent public that has been, you know, misinformed about what the truth is. And once you kind of move past that, they never return to visit. They, they never hold the media accountable or their elected officials. Hey, well, before we move on to Israel, how about this things you told me about Ukraine? I mean, he told me if we'd provide another, you know, 20 billion or 50 billion or 100 billion, Ukraine was going to defeat Russia. Well, I got this guy on the radio saying Ukraine's about to run out of people to fight with. And they're about to sign up for a peace deal. NBC, this some, some, I mean, I don't trust a guy on the radio because you know how they are. But I mean, he quoted some NBC source. I mean, surely we trust them. And NBC News said it looks like Ukraine is going to be forced into some sort of peace deal. Probably the same peace deal they could have cut two years ago when Israel uh, kind of brokered or negotiated. But the U.S. said, no, we're not going to allow that um, to happen. So, so what happens when these things play out nowhere near as we were told? Do the Seinfeld watcher just move on to the next whatever they're told? And, you know, may, maybe Guam needs our help in a year or two. And people fly their Guam flags at beach houses. They put their, uh, you know, their profile has a, a picture of the Guam we just we owe ourselves better better than this 843-661-0937 back at a few you know if i were king of the world all these things would be fixed and solved <laughs> by dart right the only problem sure. i'd have that i'm continuing to struggle with is health care i mean i could fix ukraine and russia i could solve uh the palestinian israeli land dispute um i could fix terrorism but health insurance is probably more complicated than any of all that. So I want to make it simple. You ready? If you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, if you don't need all the bells and whistles that are required, if you go on some of these healthcare exchanges or buy policies from insurance companies, you need to call Christian Levis. 
at 839-888-3978, 839-888-3970, or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com, realchoicehealthcare.com. Let's go to the phone. John in Florence, good morning. You are on. Good morning, gentlemen. Just a couple of quick points. I haven't called in in a while, but um, my thoughts on uh, Ukraine is, uh, I think, personally, I think we need to stay out of it. But um, the thought I always have is, what if the the Russians were arming Mexico? How would we feel about that? We probably would be inclined to to um, invade Mexico. So with, um, you know, with Ukraine considering joining uh, our side, so to speak, then uh, I'm sure the Russians were not happy about that. Uh, Moving on to Israel very quick. I think, Ken, you asked a, a couple of weeks back, what should we do, the United States? To me, just have their back. We don't need to get over there and be involved. Just let them do what they need to do, and then it'll be over. Uh, we have that vote on the Security Council. The UN just have their back. Last thing, Ken, and, and your family was on the business and, and was in manufacturing. You know, we talk about NAFTA, what the government has done, how businesses have gone overseas. Well, I think that's true. The government opened the door. But businesses made the decision to walk through that door. And I would just like to hear your opinion. You know, your family, as far as I know, kept making uh, truck bodies and all here. You didn't move somewhere else. And I know there may have been reasons for that. But as a business owner, you know, at what point do you say, well, I've got American workers and, and I don't want to see my little town die so I'm going to stay here and maybe make a little less profit. I think some of some of us out here, uh, maybe the America First crowd, we've kind of lost some faith in our businesses out there that they don't have our back anymore. And y'all have a good day. Thank you. That's an interesting question to ask. Um, now, I'm out of the business. I got out of my family's business in 2008. So I've spent 15. I talked to my brother a lot about the business. I still feel like I'm an active part of the family. I mean, once you're in that business, I guess you're in, in it forever, but it's a challenge. I mean, business in America today is more challenging. I would argue than it's ever been. We got to take a hard break. I'll come back and revisit that on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number on this Thursday morning. We ramble about talking international and foreign policy. Um, an America first Republican has no business talking about foreign policy, Rev. We're isolationists, <laughs> we're told by the mainstream yeah, uh, media. And some in our own party say we're a bit um, isolationists. As I get older in my personal life, I'm damn close to an isolationist. <laughs> I mean, I really and truly am. If I'm not at the gym, Litchfield, or Gamecock Park, I'm sleeping somewhere. Uh, Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, and a man in the news in the last few days that. is with us this morning because Drew is the first chair of the National Republican Committee. He's our guest this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Man, I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Despite I, the fact that you're an isolationist. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat of an isolationist <laughs> in my personal life. I'm a non-interventionist in my political life. I am somewhat of an isolationist 
in my person. Okay, I got to get to the point now. I, I would be derelict in my duty as a esteemed journalist if I didn't go down this road with you. So there are some disappointed in our performance a couple of Tuesdays ago. I'm talking about the Republican Party in general. Uh, we discussed that a little bit last week. Um, yep. There is a particular presidential candidate that said, let somebody else have a try at it. And the name he brought up was Drew McKissick. I want your comment on what Ramaswamy had to say. Well, you know, candidates will often do things and say things uh, for their own reasons and their own campaigns to try to generate attention for their own campaigns. And, you know, I'm not really going to, you know, necessarily dissect the whys necessarily. Um, uh, well, let's just put it this way. We, we've got a presidential debate coming up in December, the next one, December the 6th, I believe it is. And, you know, as with the previous debates, the threshold to get into that debate is raised just a bit. So I think the polling threshold is going to be 6%, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the donor threshold goes up, I think, an extra 10,000 donors nationwide. And, you know, so candidates will often do things to try to generate a little bit of attention or generate some extra donors for their campaigns to hit certain thresholds. And, you know, it was certainly a high-profile you know, shot, I guess you'd say, uh, and especially, you know, there at the debate itself down in Miami. You know, I was there. We talked about that a little bit last week. But uh, so, you know, I, I got a feel that that had a good bit to do with the decision. But, I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, that, uh, you know, candidates have to run their own campaigns. The party has its own job to do. Uh, and we, whether it's at the national party, the county party level, or the state party level, the party itself, the party organizations, the party committees, technically, which is what we are, we're campaign committees. We do not run individual campaigns. You know, when, when you know, Ken's running for office, Ken's running his own campaign. You know, Ken's deciding who's going to be his communications person and who's going to run his commercials and, you know, who's going to direct them and what they're going to be about and, you know, what his mail piece is going to say and so forth. We certainly offer advice. We'll give them polling information try to guide them as much as we can. But our main job is not doing that for them. Our main job as a party, and again, at any level, is actually running what I call the generic Republican get-out-the-vote initiative, you know, at every level. You know, what can we do to help raise the tide of the overall number of people, say, for instance, here in South Carolina, that will vote straight ticket and that will help every candidate on the ballot, you know? And I think I've said this before here on your show, and I think it, it bears repeating. It shows the job that we've done here. You know, the first time in the history of South Carolina that we beat Democrats on straight ticket voting was just seven years ago. It was 2016, you know, so on a statewide basis. We beat them by two points in terms of who would pick straight Republican or straight Democrat here in South Carolina. And in 18, we beat them by eight points. In 20, we beat them by 17 points. And in 22, we beat them by 27 points statewide. That's the generic Republican get-out-the-vote machine at work, which helps every candidate on the ballot running as a Republican, whether they're running for coroner or whether they're running for United States Senate. Uh, but doing that in every state, in every county, and then at the national level, helping state and local races do that, that's the job of the campaign committees. So, Drew, do you have an interest at some point in time? I mean, i got to ask you this because I hope the answer is yes. You've succeeded in South Carolina, but a lot of people would say, well, I mean, you should. It's a red state. I mean, making a red state redder isn't rocket science. But, but and I'm not saying what you would do different, but, but what, what would, how does Drew McKissick end up 
as the national chair? Well, you know, as a friend of mine once said, uh, I'm not going to put my cart ahead of God's horse. So, <laughs> so you know, I mean, there's, there's a time and a place for everything. Uh, right now, we've got the 2024 elections to win. Uh, and, you know, as we go through that cycle, uh, then we'll get around to January 25 is when the National Committee will, you know, elect uh, new leadership for the next election cycle. Uh, so whenever we get around to that, uh, I'll evaluate things myself and see how things look, not just here, but nationally. And, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, where I stand with other national committee members and so forth. And then, you know, obviously pray about it and then make that decision then. But, you know, there, there's a lot of water to go under this bridge between now and next November, brother. I promise you that. All right. But, but I got to ask you this. I don't know how to ask it, but I'm going to do the best I know how. I believe, and I debate a lot of my Republican friends. Uh, you know some, some, some are kind of off the beaten path, but the majority of people I interact with see the world as I do from a political perspective, not lockstep, uh-huh. but we're generally in, a, in agreement. I believe that today the, the, the political debate within our party is give our voters a chance to vote for an outsider instead of an insider, perceived or not, fair or not, they're going to take that opportunity. But, Drew, for you to exist in the echo chamber you do, it requires a certain degree of insiderism. Is that fair? That, that for, for an outsider to criticize somebody uh, as, as closely associated with the party as you are, you had no choice but to become somewhat of an insider. Well, look, I mean, so what, and, and this is the thing where, you know, you kind of get down into, uh, I don't want to say splitting hairs, but, you know, what defines an insider and an outsider? I mean, is, in other words, if you're the guy who's, you know, and, and I've been that guy, by the way. I first got involved in politics in the late 80s, all right? I, I came into the party, if you will, with what we called at the time, you know, it was referred to as the Christian conservative way of coming into the party. And they, we were the outsiders. Uh, and we were throwing rocks at the building, so to speak. And then you get in the building finally, and then what do you do? You end up catching the rocks that people are throwing at the building. So you see the problem from both perspectives. You, you, you understand that really what's at issue here is getting more people who generally believe the same thing to work on the same team in order to win because elections are about math. You've got to get 50% plus one, put that kind of coalition together in order to win. And when it comes to campaigns and doing the things that I talked about a minute or two ago, uh, there's a certain level of, you know, institutional knowledge and experience that goes with that. The things that you know need to be done to make sure the trains run on time to get votes to the polls in order to win so that those elected officials that our party activists have nominated get to go impact public policy. Uh, And that's so in a way, your job is being a mechanic, you know, a party leader, party chairman. Uh, at every level, you're not a policy guy. Now, you certainly got strong opinions about policy. Otherwise, you're probably, you probably know, you need a different hobby. Uh, but your job in that role is to be a mechanic. Make sure things work, work the way they should. Make sure the people who can be effective are at the table doing and working in the lanes that they can work in to affect the ultimate goal, which is making sure that we get out as many Republican conservative voters as possible and we win because losers do not make policy. Well, I'm 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 chairing the committee. I've never wanted to chair a committee, but I'm chairing the committee to draft you, uh, to draft you national chairman, uh, Drew McKissick for SC. Excuse me for national RNC chairman, uh, and I and I'll give a website out as soon as we make one up out of uh, out of thin air. Uh, I, I want to get your take on this, and then I'll let you get out of here because this is interesting to me. Quinnipiac had a national poll yesterday, in the Republican primary, Trump sixty four, DeSantis sixteen, Haley nine. 
Um, your guy, Vivek Ramaswamy, 4%. In the general, in the general, Trump 48, Biden 46. But but hold on right. to that number now. Don't, now. Don't, hold, don't confuse everybody now and say that some guy's my guy. Now. Somebody's going to hear you. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't. I can say anything I want. You can't. That's the luxury I have that, that you don't. Um, when I was a candidate, I had to behave like you do. I'm not a candidate anymore. I say the damn thing I want to, and, uh, and let it fall where it may. Uh, and I, and I and I mean this sincerely. I think you do yourself a great service. I know you do our audience a service by coming on and knowing that I'll take this in a in a multitude of different directions but but i want you to give me your expert opinion here because this is interesting yeah. to me in the general in the quinnipiac poll trump 48 biden 46 if you lump in kennedy stein and west trump goes from 48 to 38 biden goes from 46 to 35 kennedy is an independent 17 he's taking as many votes away from trump as he is biden mm-hmm. legit poll or not uh, well, I think uh, I'm, I would say from a polling standpoint right now, you know, uh, you're looking at a snapshot in time right now based on issues that people know about right now. And I've been asked about the Kennedy thing before. And one of the, the, the pushback that I have to that uh, is all the people know about him generally right now is that he disagrees with Joe Biden on uh, vaccines, COVID policy, et cetera. They're not thinking about, they're not being told about, you know, all of the liberal positions, the standard issue, you know, liberal Democrat positions that he has on a multitude of other issues. Uh, you know, which obviously that's not interesting right now on the Democrat side. They agree on all that other stuff. And the reason why he's threatening to run as an independent is because basically he's being frozen out of the Democrat primaries. So the man is still a Democrat. So if we got further down that road, if that, he actually gets on the ballot in a multitude of states, I would say more importantly, if he gets on the ballot in key swing states, about nine states right now that are going to matter to the presidential election. That's just a fact. If he's on the ballot in those states, I guarantee you money is going to get spent to make sure any remotely Republican or conservative voter knows about all of his liberal issue positions on those other issues, and that will drive the Republicans back home who might even think about voting for the guy. Uh, So, you know, this is not a national contest for president. This is a state-by-state contest for president. Uh, and until you start seeing state-by-state polls that break those numbers down, you know, I think it's just a little bit premature, especially when we don't have a full picture of the guy from an issue standpoint, at least publicly. I'm not asking you when, but but I'd love to get your opinion on Trump's at 62 in the Fox News poll. He's at 64 in the Quinnipiac poll. Uh, we're, we're spending money having debates. We're spending money on things other than, you know, kind of circling the wagons around one candidate. Is it fair for the party to have a debate at some point in time in yeah. the not-too-distant future to circle the wagons and just all agree, whether you like it or not, this is our guy, and um, and he's going to be you know top of our ticket. Well, Let, let's, let's do everything in our power to get him elected. Well, first off, keep in mind that Republican activists, Republican voters choose our nominee, not polls, not debates. And nobody's cast a single ballot yet. That doesn't happen until Iowa Republicans go to their caucuses in January. Uh, And then it happens in New Hampshire and then Nevada and then here in South Carolina on February 24th. So that's one thing. As far as the debates go, though, I just want to just kill this this misnomer that's floating out there right now. The Republican Party is not paying to put on any debates. We contract with the media to let the media pay to put on the debates. So I think NBC probably spent something in the neighborhood of $3 million to put on that debate in Miami last week. That's NBC. They build their staging. They pay their people. They reserve the hall. All we do is give them the right to do it 
with our, essentially with our logo on it, and we bring the candidates. Uh, so we're not spending any money to put on debates. Now, and I'll say this, if we cancel all the debates today, RNC is not going to put on any more debates. What will happen tomorrow is other state parties around the country and other media outlets will start contracting with the candidates individually, and there will be even more debates than what we have had already. Uh, you know, it's just the nature of the free market. And what we've done is try to corral this and keep things to a minimum, setting up the process that we have and knowing what's happened in years past. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a fair process, as fair as we can make it to everybody. Uh, but the bottom line is, I think by the end of March, mathematically, this will probably all be over. I'd be surprised if it's not. Uh, and our convention is not till next July. So, uh, you know, I think we're on track to probably wrapping things up uh, a good bit quicker than has been done in the past. And, you know, we can get kind of impatient watching this stuff on TV. I get it. You know, news is 24-7. Uh, but it's going to happen, and it's going to happen quicker than in the past, I believe. Well explained, and I'll send you the uh, I'll send you the email address to draft Drew McKissick as national chairman <laughs> of the RNC as soon you as make Rev put together that website. Uh, I mean, we can do GoDaddy.com between uh, between a commercial break. Don't, don't, don't underestimate our shrewd uh, and capable talents here, Drew. Thank you, my friend. Good to hear from you, yes, and um, and uh, you acquitted yourself well as you always do. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937. This is a show with very little fact and a lot of opinion. I mean, we admit that. I mean, it's not a lot of fact. I mean, you, you know, there, the fact is there's a poll out. Your opinion of that poll can be whatever your opinion chooses to be. We don't discuss facts for four hours. That would bore you to death. People have opinions about what they believe and see. But the only fact that I'm sure of is I'm the only person in this county who knows how to drive. No. <laughs> I mean, n- n- nobody, that is okay. a fact. That's not my opinion. That is a fact. I am the only person deserving of a valid driver's license in this entire, mm-hmm. in this entire county, especially as we head ever closer to the festive holiday season when people think more of their driving prowess than they, than they probably um, should. We have Mike Nunn with the Florence County Sheriff's Office. Where are you going with this? Why are we not talking about you? Well, <laughs> Mike Nunn's with us. It's our law enforcement hour. Uh, one hour per month, we dedicate and set aside a uh, an allotted amount of time to make sure you, our listenership, understands what law enforcement is doing and what their priorities are. And Mike, good morning. How are you, guys? Yeah. Thanks for having me on again. And, and, and I gotta believe that as we head closer to the holiday season, traffic becomes a higher priority. Well, it does, and you know, I came to Florence in 1982, and the traffic in Florence now is like nothing that I experienced when I first came here. It, you know, when, when I first came here, I could drive from my house to my office and in the winter, my heater wouldn't even get warm before I got there. You know, it's, uh, but it's a completely different thing now. And as anybody that's driven around Florence, um, man, the traffic's tough. Um, so, uh, we want to going into the holiday season to remind everyone to, Please uh, observe the uh, drinking and driving laws. Highway Patrol is going to come on here shortly. I'm sure they're going to talk about that. Uh, we, we work closely with the Highway Patrol to try and reduce highway fatalities. Uh, in looking at the uh, DPS uh, website this morning, 18 souls were lost in Florence County year to date. And uh, we certainly don't want to see that uh, number grow over the holidays. But I didn't come to talk about just about that. Um there's been some recent legislation 
uh, from Columbia that affects traffic. Okay. And uh, so wanted to uh, tell your listening audience about a couple of the things. First of all, the you may have heard the Carolina squat um, pickup truck uh, vehicle uh, elevation uh, law has now become effective. <laughs> Uh, that was I've always wondered why you wouldn't just lean your seat back. <laughs> right. If you want to ride like that, just lean your I seat back, it. man. So uh, as a result of this legislation, it's uh, SC Code 56-5-4445. It's now illegal for a passenger vehicle to be elevated or lowered more than six inches from its manufacturer. Good and, old South Carolina. And, and for pickup trucks... Um, if the front fender is raised four or more inches from the rear fender, then it's a violation. Half the people in Pamplica will have to walk tomorrow. <laughs> okay, so the effective date of this legislation was November the 12th. And for the first 180 days following the effective date, you can only issue warnings. Okay. okay. So the good old boys can make it to work today. They can go today okay. and probably until sometime in April. Uh, it's not uh, 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 an offense that gets anything more than a warning. Um, after the 180 days, it will be uh, a ticketable offense. And there's some gradations of the number of violations get you from a misdemeanor to a felony and, you know, that type of thing. So without getting down into weeds, it's now a stoppable offense. You may just get a warning, but once it's once you're stopped, if the officer sees any other violation in plain view, it could result in additional enforcement action. So, just uh, word mm. to the wise out there that. And, the, and uh, but but I mean we're, we're laughing and, and it is funny. I mean it really is. It's comical to me that they have somebody to carry would, their tape measure now yeah. to measure those. Bumpers. Well, I mean, but but it is angles. a safety issue. Am I right? Well, there's no question it's a safety issue uh, from multiple standpoints, and of course, you know, Philip Lowe and and Jay and and Mike could probably speak specifically to the policy considerations for it. But it was ab about injury enhancement uh, during vehicle collisions. It's about you know the uh, the handling of those vehicles. I, we've even seen some of them in that the the. The hood was raised so high that the driver actually couldn't see the roadway over it and, and drove based on a video camera inside the vehicle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. High tech so, redneck. So, Needs a uh, periscope. Anyway, uh, that. Hang your head out the a, window like Ace Ventura. That's now a thing. So um, the Carolina squat law. Yeah. Became effective uh, last week, and we're writing warning tickets. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, you've got an obligation to force the law, whether you like it or not. Well, we do, and uh, so uh, just a word to the wise out there. The next thing I want to talk about is something we typically face on a daily basis, going to and from work, and it's the stopped school bus. And for some reason, the new law has confounded a lot of people about whether they need to stop or don't stop, and and so uh, essentially, um, on a two-lane road. You must stop for the stop school bus when the lights are flashing and the stop arm is out, regardless of whether you're approaching the vehicle, uh, the, the uh, school bus from the front or the rear. Okay, two lane road, no, uh, you, you got to stop. Now, on a, a four lane road, unless you are 
um, uh, coming up from behind the school bus, you don't have to stop. So if you're approaching the school bus on a four-lane road in the opposite direction from the where the school bus is headed, on a four-lane road, you do not have to stop. But if you're approaching from the rear, you do. Okay, now, this, folks, this is a serious violation. This is a six-point violation. Wow. It's, it's a big deal. Um, most of the school buses are equipped with a video camera that can capture when people uh, disregard the um, <clears throat> the stop arm, but more important than the than the the fine and the and the ticket is the safety of these kids, you know. So let's uh, let's be careful around school buses and uh, let the kids get on. Now, now the two lane road that has like a turn lane in the middle, um, that has you know what I'm saying. So technically, that's a two lane, two way traffic, one lane in each direction. But you have a turn lane. Is that a two lane road? For I this would say so. Yeah, um, I would say so. Well, you're the man with the badge and gun, so what you say carries a day around here. Man. All right, I want to so, make sure it's important. So another um, uh, piece of legislation that's fairly recent is the Move Right Law. South Carolina has a Move Right Law. It's 56-5-1885. On a controlled access highway, and think interstate, um, the drivers are to use the left lane to pass only. Okay? Here, here. So um, <clears throat> slower traffic has to keep right, only to use the left lane when you're uh, passing other vehicles. There are some exceptions to that, and one of which is um, when there's no other vehicles directly behind you, it's okay to drive in the left lane. And when traffic conditions make it um, uh, inappropriate to drive in the right lane, or um, so if there's a um, you know obstruction, if it's um, for some reason you uh, imp- impassable on the right lane, you can certainly go to the left. And then if there is an exit to the left that you're preparing to take, you can obviously drive in the left lane. All right. So that's the move right law. Well, we actually have a move left law. No. <laughs> <And> this, <laughs> so that's 56, 5, 15, 38. So this requires drivers to slow down and move over to the left when approaching an emergency vehicle stopped on the roadway. Uh, and this is when conditions allow. <clears throat> so if you're driving down the roadway and the, there's an emergency vehicle on the right side of the shoulder on a controlled access highway and it's safe to do so, you're required to move over to the left. Okay, and this applies when the, those emergency vehicles are using the emergency lights, blue lights for police officers, red lights for fire trucks, ambulances, and even rescue, recovery, and tow vehicles. Uh, are considered emergency vehicles for this uh, statute uh, when they're making use of those lights on the side of the road. And it just makes sense. You know, sure it's, just, does. it's almost common courtesy because we want to give those folks there doing their job uh, to help out on the roadways um, as much room as possible and, and hopefully avoid uh, some type of uh, collision with them. And the last thing I'll tell you about is bicycles. I don't know about you, but way I go to work, I, I encounter bicyclists a lot. Uh, so, you know, question is, what are the duties and responsibilities of, of the motorist and the bicyclist uh, when they share the roadway with us? Okay. So, um, 56.5.32.30 says drivers of vehicles must exercise due care to avoid a collision with a bicyclist or a pedestrian. Okay. That makes sense. We use due care certainly not done intentionally 
um, do anything to harm a pedestrian or a bicyclist. <clears throat> and I guess this goes into the category is if, if they made a law, then somebody must have done it. Um, but 56.5.34.45 requires uh, drivers of vehicles to refrain from harassing or throwing objects at people riding bicycles on the roadway. <laughs> okay. Not familiar with that, but like I said, somebody must have done it or they wouldn't have made a law against it. So we can't (laughs) harass or throw objects at people riding bicycles on the roadway. Even on Clemson Carolina week and the guy on the bike is not wearing your favorite (laughs) favorite color, you can't throw the beer can or the beer bottle at him uh, on the road. Pretty much. Uh, Now, now the bicyclist has some reciprocal duties. Um, They have... um, They should ride with the flow of traffic and obey all the traffic laws that apply to motor vehicles. And uh, they're to ride as far to the right of the roadway as possible. If they're riding in a group, no more than two can ride side by side. And if they ride after dark, they need to be using lights and reflectors to make uh, them more visible to motorists. You have given us a legislative update, Mm -hmm. Mike Nunn. Thank you very much. Well, listen, everybody have great holidays. Um, Again, we thank uh, uh, community broadcasters for allowing us to be part of this and, uh, We'll see you guys soon. Uh, absolutely. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Lena Butler from the South Carolina Highway Patrol is with us, and she's going to kind of give you fair warning. Uh, I know we have fun at the holidays, and we get out of our routine during the holidays. Um, people like Dave go out and drink too much during the holidays. I mean, I tell you, I'm an isolationist, so if I'm doing anything, I'm doing it by myself. Um but, but it is a time that people break their routines. Um, they're having a little more fun than maybe they normally do. But, Miss Butler, they got to be careful on the roads. That's exactly right. You know, the Thanksgiving holiday is coming up, and, you know, it begins uh, 6 p.m. Wednesday, November the 22nd, and ends midnight on Sunday, November the 26th. So, you know, we're urging the motoring public, you know, the people that are traveling this Thanksgiving weekend to slow down and pay attention also, Triple is expected more than, uh, let's see, we're going to have more people on the roadway compared to last year. You know, they're anticipating over 55 million motorists that will be traveling during the holiday period. And that is, a, that is an awful lot. 55 million. 55 million. Yep. So, you know, it's important for the motorists to remember good driving behaviors. You know, as always, we ask that you buckle up, limit your distractions, plan ahead, You know, and give yourself extra time to get to your destination. Reduce your speed and, you know, and be patient. And also, this message message never gets old. You know, if anybody's going to take part in alcohol, you know, as a part of this celebration. She just looked at Reb. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know know, why. (laughs) We ask that you um, have a plan in place. You know, use an Uber, um, ride a share, a taxi. You know, have a designated driver because we definitely don't need any more fatalities on our roadways. And, and I got to believe that some of these checkpoints, I mean, you, I mean, I, I, the, the, the sober checkpoints, I mean, to make sure people are not mm-hmm. drinking and driving. Is that, I mean, do you guys do more of that this time of the year than normal? We do. We do. You know, um, in addition to, you know, anticipating heavy traffic, you know, you can expect to see the increased presence of the South Carolina Highway Patrol state transport, and the local law enforcement um, agencies, you know, out in out in volume, you know, just so that we can, um, you know, defer these, will not have people, you know, 
on the roadway drinking and driving. So, you know, our presence is going to be great. Last question. If somebody, I mean, I don't like a snitch and I don't want to be a snitch, but if we notice erratic driving on the road and we suspect somebody may be under the influence, what are we to do as fellow motorists? Of course, by all means, you know, if you see something, say something. You know, we have our, you can dial star HP, star 47, or even 911. A star 47 or star HP will take you directly to our telecommunication operator. You know, and if you see something, report it. You know, if you can, give us the roadway, uh, give us a description of the vehicle. But, you know, don't put yourself in harm, harm's way. Don't but, try to be a vigilante no, police officer. No, definitely not. But like I said, it is very, very important that if you see something, please say something because that could, you know, possibly save somebody's life or somebody from, you know, getting seriously injured. And Thanksgiving holiday begins Wednesday. November the 22nd uh, at 6 p.m. And it ends midnight on Sunday, November the 26th. You know, last year uh, during the holiday period, we had a total of 1,480 collisions and 11 of those ended in fatal collisions. You know, and I'll, I'll give you this. You know, the three primary contributors to um, um, collisions were driving too fast for conditions. We had 496 collisions with too fast for conditions, and we had 223 failure to yield the right-of-way. And lastly, 125 animal collisions. So, you know, we're asking motorists to be mindful of, you know, animals on the roadway. You know, this this area is is prone for deer. We have a lot of deer collisions. So just be mindful of that as you're driving. And always be vigilant. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very well explained. Thank you, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your Thank time. You and well. and, and you're right. You. There really is no excuse with the ease of ride sharing. You Uber and Lyft and everything. There's just no excuse to drink and then get behind the wheel. That's it, exactly it, right. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, it's inexcusable. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the height of irresponsible. Um, and I would encourage, I mean, some of the kids don't think for themselves. So counsel with your kids. I mean, they're old enough and I'm not talking about five-year-olds. I'm talking about 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds. Don't think your kid isn't capable of doing something stupid. And at that age, when you do something stupid, you don't stand in the corner for 10 minutes, you affect and impact somebody else's and their family's life forever as well as your own. I mean, it's a big decision to make. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Don't let the old man in. I won't live it alone. Can't leave it up to Knocking on my door And I knew all of my life That someday it would end Get up and go outside Don't let the old man in Many months I have lived my body's weathered and worn. Ask yourself, how would you be if you didn't know the day you were born? Try to love on your wife. 
stay close to your friends Toast each sundown with wine Don't let the old man This morning, I mean, you, you and I were talking about something yeah. this morning. I can't remember. And, uh, and we talked about staying young and not getting old. And I said, I don't want to let that old man in. And we brought up the Toby Keith song. There's a few lines in songs that, that I find ex- extremely relatable as I get older. Uh, there's a line in Bob Seger's Against the Wind when he says, I began to find myself seeking shelter again and again. Um, but that song probably, I mean, I just find that so relatable. How old um, would you be if you didn't know when yeah, you were born? Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the song from what he says. I mean, obviously, he's got some health issues. So so a lot of people play into, you know, um, just enjoy every day. You know, every day is kind of a gift from God. It ain't kind of a gift from God. <laughs> it is a gift from God. It either is or it ain't a gift from God. But he talks about, you know, um, I mean, in his condition, and he sings this song, it's it's a bit, ah, what am I trying to say? It's a bit mortal. I mean, is that is that a fair way to, I mean, you, you, you talked about Springsteen and McCartney and all these guys, mm-hmm. you think in their later years, I mean, they're, they're not going to live to be 120. So there's no doubt they're in their later years. I'm not saying they're in the winter of their life, but, but Toby Keith being ill had spent some time with Clint Eastwood. And Eastwood at 93 years old was still producing and directing movies. And he said, how do you do it? He said, I just don't let the old man in. Uh, what, what do you mean you don't let the old man in? He said, I don't sit on my duff, man. I don't sit in a chair. I don't I don't go to bed at 7 o'clock. I don't, you know, t- take a nap three times. Uh, uh, and I believe there's such beauty in that. Um, you know, that, that that's the songwriter's way of explaining it. Rev and I uh, both are, uh, we always talk about the way these wordsmiths say things. Um you know, we say he's finding himself in a difficult place. They say there's a dirty wind blowing. Right. You know, we say we're getting older. Don't want to get older. I want to try and stay young. <laughs> and he says, don't let the old man in. Uh, you know, those songwriters and wordsmith are just, I mean, that's their gift. And they're making their contribution uh, to society in whatever way. I mean, obviously in today's world, uh, they're, they're making enormous amounts of money by being entertainers. I was listening to a sports show yesterday. And they were talking about uh, this day in history. 
and they were talking about the the, the athletic events that happened on this day in 1946, 51, whatever the year was. I don't remember. But it was amazing to me how many of the heroes of that era never made much money. I mean, they, they were salesmen in the offseason. They were um, one guy from Southern California had a chance to play in the National Football League or go to work at a steel mill in his hometown, and the steel mill pay was better, had a pension, and, and, and a, you know, a little bit of health insurance. And he said, no, nah, I mean, I'm not playing football. I can't make a living playing football. And that would have been, you know, early days of the, of the National Football League. Mickey Mantle, I think, had a part-time job as a car salesman. About 80% of all the Major League Baseball players, about 90% had, you know, um, part-time jobs. I mean, they played baseball or football during that season, and then they found something else to do. So, in, and the reason I say that is, I mean, you know, the songwriters of the early 1900s, I mean, they didn't make the sort of money that these guys make today or these ladies uh, make today, but they're making their contribution. They're, they're taking the gift from God and, and, and I guess, maximizing its potential. But when I heard that song for the first time, um, Josh, you, you, you're, you're oblivious to this, and, and I think Rev can relate. There's, there's a, a midlife crisis. Sometimes it's more intense than others. But there's a point in your life, and I don't want to philosophize, but there's a point in everybody's life. It may not be uh, Tuesday, November, you know, whatever, at 447 when I was – I mean, I'm not saying a road to Damascus sort of experience, to use a biblical reference. But there's a point in all of our lives when we begin to understand with absolute clarity that there's more living in my rearview mirror than there is in my front windshield. And when you start contemplating that, it gets funky. Uh, it did for me. I mean, it gets extremely funky for me when I start thinking about, wow. I mean, I, I remember some of what's back there, but but a lot I don't remember, a lot I didn't take seriously enough, a lot I took too, too damn serious, but what am I going to do with whatever's left in the uh, – in the front windshield, and I, you know, and I, I know I use Bruce a lot as a reference, but in the in the in the when he introduces Thunder Road in the Springsteen on Broadway, and he talks about, you know, I'm laying in the back of a truck with the band's furniture. I didn't have a dollar to my name, but I knew I had a blank page, and I knew that blank page was left for me to write on whatever I choose to write on, and I think when you get in your <laughs> midlife, whatever age you refer to that as, you realize there ain't no blank page no more. I mean, that page has got a bunch on it. It's crammed full of a lot. Of, Josh has a blank page. I mean, he's beginning to write the first chapter of his of his life. I mean, I know he's, and by that I mean his independent existence. We, right. we all live the first 18 of our years of our life under the thumb of somebody, <laughs> you know, aggravating parents, making you do this and making you do that and, <laughs> telling you the right way to do this and the mm-hmm. wrong way to do that. But once you begin to taste that freedom and independence, it becomes your responsibility. I mean, it really does. And when you get to midlife and you look in that rear view and you look at all that living you were responsible for and what did you do with it? And, and then you look in the front and you say, I mean, uh, you know, there's some out there, but there's a hell of a lot more back there than there is. Um, and I just think, you know, not letting the old man in it's kind of inspirational for me to say, nah, man, there's a lot of living left if you don't let the old man in. Uh, 
does that make sense? Yeah, of course it does. Yeah, you know, it hits I, home. And I tend to ramble on on these sorts of things because yeah. I don't want to goof it up. I mean, I, I don't. I, I know I've goofed up some things in the past. I can't do anything about that. I mean, I can't bring those mistakes uh, back. But but I, I got to learn from that, and I got to take all that's back there and create a way forward. And and one thing I've decided, I mean, I'm going to goof up. I know I am. Uh, I, I know I'm going to goof up some things in the front windshield, but, but I ain't let the old man in. I, I'm not going to let my dad die with his boots on. <laughs> I'm going to try my dead level best to die with my boots on. And how do you do that? Just working, staying active? Well, I mean, I, I, what I've decided, and you've heard me talk a lot about, I've decided to be physically active. I think that keeps me mentally sharp. I mean, I, I know I got to work because I got to make money to spend. I mean, I like spending money, so I got to make money. I like doing things. Nobody gives me trips. Nobody gives me football tickets. Nobody gives me a place at the beach. I got to get out and earn that. So, so, but, but no, I think longevity and quality of life is something that we have a lot of input in. And I made a commitment, a, a, a sound, and I'm proud of that. I mean, I, once again, I've screwed up a lot, and I'll screw up a lot more. But, I, I, I mean, Josh gave me something to read here from Rivals of Store Divided. And Josh knows that on Thursdays, I'm out of here pretty quick because, I'm, you know, I got a busy afternoon. I go to that gym. I get those two hours. And I've read enough, Rev, and I've, I've counseled you on this. I've read enough to, to, to know that your future will involve you getting old unless you die young. And, and getting old is it's unavoidable. You're going to have a birthday every 365 days. How healthy are you going to be? And I think health and longevity contribute to the quality of life and the ability to do things with your family and eventual grandkids. So, so yeah, I can control that. I mean, there's some things I can't control. But I have absolute control over 90% of my health and well-being, and I ain't goofing that up. That's one way for me to not let uh, the old man in. You start taking a handful of pills every morning. You know, you're limping around every afternoon. To me, you've kind of made a conscious decision. I get genetics, and I understand, you know, things happen, and you can't, you can't control. But I think one way to not let the old man is, or in is to be exercising, trying to stay fit, trying to stay alert, and that contributes to, um, to longevity. And I think you savor the moment when you, when you feel better. I mean, if you feel bad and you, you know, you, you're not healthy and you got grandkids running around, you're more likely to say, yeah, that looks good. But if you're feeling good and you're vibrant and your, 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 your vital and measurements are better than most people your age, next thing you know, you may be throwing baseball with your grandkid, you know, at 75 years old. Let's go to the phone. And I was going to say, speaking of, you just mentioned rivals, we should mention that next Wednesday we'll be doing our annual rivals you know, Carolina Clemson rivalry show um, on location from rivals teamed up with our sister station ESPN radio and the bad boy of sports radio. So next Wednesday will be basically in pre-holiday mode uh, the day before Thanksgiving. We change our, our topics of conversation directly to that great rivalry between the Gamecocks and the Tigers. That is ever the promoter. Yeah. Let's yeah. go to the phone. Don't miss an opportunity to promote. Here's David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Dave. Hey, good morning, Ken. Uh, you would have to bring up Clint Eastwood. Whenever I think about Clint Eastwood, I don't know part of it. I think about San Francisco. And you guys remember back in the days you had them movies. What was it? Harry Callahan. Uh, those movies were set in San Francisco. And I think he had a movie about Alcatraz. Uh, there was another movie back in the day, Steve McQueen, Bullet, San Francisco. Just a picturesque city, beautiful city. 
And I go back to Eastwood's days. There was a Korean War where real people fought a war. Uh, and we were fighting against the Chinese Army uh, back in Korea, and they wore tennis shoes. I always remember that. I thought I thought it's ironic that Nike, yeah, they, they set up shop there in China because they like the tennis shoes. But uh, what what I've watched here in San Francisco the last few days, yeah, I mean, it's just embarrassing in a way because, I know, maybe Joe Biden is sort of like Clint Eastwood in a way, He's but he's all squint. He's no swagger. And I can assure you that these folks over there in China or Ukraine or Russia or anywhere, they, they realize that. And, again, was that Gavin Newsom or Pat Riley the other day? Greeting Chi. Look, look, I mean, look is, is Gavin Newsom, but he had that Italian soup look like Pat Riley <laughs> famously <laughs> whatever. had. Whatever. I mean, why don't they go, what was the thing, the dirty laundry place or whatever to eat? It's just unbelievable what these folks do. But they could care less. They could care less about you, me. All they are are basically the global shakedown artists. I mean, they are trying to make money. That G, why would you clean the streets of San Francisco? You don't even clean it for Nancy Pelosi. But if you're a global shakedown artist, heck yeah, you're going to get it for China. If you really study China, look, look at some of these issues. 5G, AI, TikTok, facial recognition. I mean, look at these electric car components, solar panels. These guys are so far ahead of us. It's unbelievable. But what bothers me more is the Gavin Newsom's, the all squint, no swagger Biden's. They care less about me, you. And my thing is that let's see what they do about East Palestine, Ohio, China Grove, North Carolina. But again, they these folks, just like that cowboy from Oklahoma was confronting the guy with the union, that guy in the union, he's just an organizer. That's how he makes his money. He don't produce nothing. Cowboys produce stuff. So anyway, these cats, man, these guys are just global shakedown artist and it, it just sickens me you'll have a good day thank you david appreciate that Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number i did see that video from the tarmac the other day when the communist leader greeted president g <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the 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 meeting of two great and uh and aspirational <laughs> communist so somebody called in earlier and i made a couple of notes here and david touched on this a bit about national security and you know what america's priorities should be and I'm thinking about when China, you know, China has become an enormous producer. I mean, they're a big consumer as well because they've got one and a half billion people, but they're an unbelievable producer. I mean, they're the world's manufacturing plant. We are unbelievable at consuming, but our producing is not kept up with our consuming. So if I were a president or someone running for president, every policy, not every, but the majority of policies I would prioritize would be those that allow us to be a more productive nation. We don't depend on uh, China. We don't rely on a supply chain that includes, you know, some of the European Union. Anyway, I just think the biggest nation on the planet, the most powerful nation, most prosperous nation on the planet should be the most productive nation on the planet. And we still export ideas and concepts and and technology. Uh, We still invent more than any body in the world. We just don't produce as much as we should. We're damn good at consuming. I mean, we're consumers extraordinaire, 
but we don't produce as much as I wish we did. We farmed out some of that less than um, honorable way. It's kind of sweat of the brow, dirt under the fingernail um, sort of work. And I just remember uh, years and years and years ago, before I became politically astute, I just remember kind of looking around going like, wow, man, it just seems we're a better nation when we make things. We're, we're a better country when we build stuff. When, when you don't, uh, I, I told you the story about my brother, myself, and my dad were going to China, and we were forced to kind of outsource. I mean, our business got real competitive, and we were paying X for this, and we could go to China and sign a deal and, and say 60%. It was a big component. It was a foundry. I mean, it was a cast iron and, and a foundry product. And, I mean, I just remember telling a friend of mine, hey, we're going to China. You want me to bring you something back? And he said, I don't need everything I got in my house now is from China. Uh, why do I need you bringing me something uh, from China? And I remember as a younger, uh, just kind of a younger old soul, I've always felt like I was somewhat of a misfit, uh, born, I say, 100 years too late. My wife always says, 100? Uh, okay. You're giving yourself more credit than you really and truly deserve. But I just remember in, in our manufacturing world, I mean, my family was just immersed in manufacturing and, and this plant would go and that plant would go and this process would change and that process would change. And I'm not thinking as a Republican or Democrat, I'm thinking about somebody who works in manufacturing and, and all of a sudden I'm like, we don't manufacture anything anymore, man. I mean, we create all the ideas and concepts, but then we farm out some of the, um, some of the labor intensive to, to China and places. And I just don't think that's ever been in our best interest. Take a break. Back in a few. It's actually not my world. It's Josh's world. He has to blank sheet of paper. That's right. Uh, to, to, to write down whatever he chooses uh, to write down. And then you think about don't let the old man in. And I'm talking about riding down the road. And I'm using the analogy of the rear window or the rear view mirror and the front windshield. And then you kind of pivot. And you think about how many how much life has been snuffed out in needless war. I'm not saying every war is unjustified, nor would I say every war has been um, justified. But you think about all the human life that was not lived because leadership, uh, Shelby Foote, I forced Rev this morning. Shelby Foote is a, um, he's passed away now, but he was a, a fellow Southerner and someone who started writing a book, a narrative of the Civil War in 1954 and finished it in 1974. <laughs> Took him 20 years of his life, and he says, I didn't work on anything else. I thought that I would write it in two or three years, and I got infatuated with it. Uh, and I let Rev listen to him a little bit this morning, and he's obviously, I mean, he's, he's, he sounds like the Civil War. And he talks about, you know, that war defined us. I mean, the revolution gave us our freedom and our, and our constitution and our existence as a nation, but the civil war was the day we grew up. Um, but one thing Shelby Foote says, and I've read a lot of what Ken Burns, I mean, you only know who Shelby Foote is, watch the Ken Burns, you know, documentary on the civil war. Shelby Foote is one of the go-to guys because he spent such a large part of his life writing and better understanding. But he says the war was going to happen. I mean, there, there was a, there was an absolute, I mean, the, the South perceived slaves as their property. I mean, right or wrong, I mean, you know, it's wrong, but I mean, at the time, you know, slavery was prevalent in the world. Um, and you know, they felt that the, the North was trying to confiscate their property and they weren't going to let that happen. 
the thing that Foot says consistently is the travesty. I mean, obviously, the, the, you know, any war is bad, but the travesty is the war went on and on and on and on for four years. And he talks about somewhere in the neighborhood of a million uh, casualties. Now, I think the the number of armed servicemen on either side uh, and women was somewhere around, what, six or 700,000 uh, people. I mean, how much of that life was snuffed out? How many of those people were going to be productive, constructive members of society in some way or another? And I just, when, when I think of war, I mean, I do talk a lot about the, the, uh, the military-industrial complex because I'm formerly a politics, and I've seen that up close and personal, and I understand how transactional that world is. I, and I'd like to believe that there's no way in this world I could sit in a boardroom and Raytheon pay me a, a wage to be a board member and an advisor that I wouldn't at some point in time bring up. How many young people are dying? I mean, I understand we're making missiles and we're, our profits are through the roof and we got a, another trillion dollar, you know, um, defense bill passed. I get all that. I understand that. But let's, let's be human beings for a second and let's ask a question out loud to our prominent board members because they're probably board members on a lot of different boards. I mean, I would imagine that the, 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 the board member of Raytheon is, is accomplished enough to not only be on the board at Raytheon, but is there ever a conversation in that boardroom about how many Ukrainians are getting killed? How many Russians are dying? How many Palestinians? When we make these missiles, when we make these bombs, when we make these bullets, where do they end up? I mean, wouldn't you have a human obligation to at least consider that to some degree? I mean, I understand you're not king of the world. You don't get to make the rules of which everybody else has to play by. But surely as part of that debate, I mean, if we're spending roughly a trillion dollars a year on our defense budget, I think we're at about $880 billion. What's another $100 billion in Washington? But we're spending roughly a trillion dollars a year building a war machine. I mean, I know we say in the name of safety and security, and I get that. The world's a complicated and dangerous place. But, but is there no consideration given? to how many more people would be alive in the world today if America didn't spend? There would be a good way to ask the question. Would America, would, would there be more human beings living on this planet today if not for America spending $890 billion on a, you know, a war machine? And, and I am an anti-interventionist. I, I, I've not, I think since Vietnam, the American public have been misled. How many people in the world are not alive today because America spends nearly a trillion dollars on its war machine let's go to the phone anthony in north carolina good morning anthony you're on hey ken it's getting scary now man i'm down here in lower south carolina and i haven't heard your show all morning but my thoughts while i'm driving it's crazy i was just thinking ken that what if all these people who died in any wars hundreds of thousands on this side just like ukraine whatever what if the country started not go to war with each other, but take out each other's leaders. Okay, say if Ukraine go with the go-kill, like we did Saddam and Gaddafi and, and um, whoever, if it, if it go with the kill, uh, the leader of Russia, and vice versa, if that happens, that stops the war from that side. And plus, whenever the next person comes to power, they'll be more careful than to abuse that power, do whatever, because 
their life could be in jeopardy. But as long as their life is not in jeopardy and we stop wars whenever 200,000 people die or whatever die, whenever if one leader or probably 50 people around him die, the whole war will be stopped because it's their ideas that take people to war anyway. But if people start going after the leaders instead of just the army or the regular people, whatever, the next person that step in line to become a leader, he's not going to act so crazy knowing that they might come after me, not my army or not my, not sanctioning me or whatever. They come after me. But um, that's crazy how we had the same idea, and I ain't heard your show all morning, though. But what I wanted to say, Ken, is just one, one show, can you do it? What if we, the people, just take control? This voting people in and protesting, whatever, it's not going to work because that's their, their party. The whole political plan thing is their thing, the government. What if we stop buying stuff or stop uh, burning so much gas, like say one weekend or one month, we decide as, as, as Americans we're going to stop b- b- buying fuel or for a whole year we're going to stop buying new cars. That effect would scare them way more than voting or protesting or whatever because everything revolves uh, um, around money. I don't care what company it is, we could investigate to see how they're making money and boycott it from there, and they will have to change their ways. And I don't care if it's the military and industrial complex, if it's whoever that's doing the American people wrong in this country. We need to step up as people. Price of, of, of cars is way too much. Let's stop buying new cars for one or two years. See what happens. You know what I'm saying? But it might sound crazy, though, but as long as we just keep trying to put a certain person in the office or this, this and that, we're playing their game. We are never, never win because by the time a person get in the office, you got lobbyists. You got people that threaten their lives in Washington. They're going to flip. They are going to flip. So we got, can't worry about the politicians. We got to, as a people, move as a people and do stuff. And y'all have a good day, man. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. Uh, I've always believed that the ultimate test for a world leader, um, am I willing to die for this cause? And I do believe if you send young men and women to fight unjust wars <laughs> and who, I mean, this is hypothetical and theoretical, who decides what's unjust or not? We get back to the arbitrary, you know, Josh may think it's just and I may think it's unjust. Uh, so all of a sudden I'm the guy that wants to go assassinate Putin. And Josh says, well, I mean, I think what he did was justified. Some of those folks in Donbass speak Russian and some of that land does go back, you know, to ancient Russian. You see where I'm headed. I mean, that, and that, that, that gets complicated. Now, I want to go down a road, Anthony touched on, because I do believe, and I'm thinking about me and Jeff yesterday, because I think Jeff and I could have a beer and get along as long as we didn't talk politics. He's got a belief, and I have a belief, and I respect his, and I think, other than yesterday, he respected mine. Um, <laughs> I'll say that a bit. I mean, I'm saying that. I'm trying to bait him into calling. Um, but but the, the great the great mistake we all made and make, and we're fed this, and we, I mean, we, we drink the Kool-Aid like we're at Guyana with Jim Jones. You've got half the country with a torch. You've got half the country with a pitchfork. The half the country with a pitchfork believe it's the, you know, it's the half the country with the torch's fault and vice versa. And we're not going to get to a better place. That's the whole scheme. That's the master plan. That's, the designed intent. If Josh has a pitchfork and Rev has a, uh, you know, a torch, 
and Ken can convince that Rev, Josh is the problem, and I can convince Josh Rev, Rev's, Rev's the problem. I mean, he's what's wrong with this country. Then I'm over here, you know, plundering <laughs> the nation's loot. Do. Yeah, right. exactly. And, uh, and, yeah, we have fundamental disagreements. Rick and I had a disagreement this morning. Uh, Jeff and I have disagreements. Williams and I, I think we had Williams on the line. We had to go to get Drew and lost and lost Williams. I mean, I don't blame the nation's demise on Jeff or Williams. I don't think they blame it on me. We have a philosophical disagreement about what is the best way to go forward. But I can assure you of this, the Democrats in Washington will use Jeff until he's used out. The Republicans in Washington will use me until I'm used up and used out. And they continue to plunder this great nation's resources. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence. Hey, Jim, you are on the air. Good morning. Hey, good morning. At, at some point, aren't the Palestinians uh, complicit uh, because they elected Hamas um, and then allowed them to stay in power in, in Gaza? Aren't they somewhat complicit? Jim, I believe they're somewhat complicit. The complicit degree, I guess, would be does Hamas knock on the door of a Palestinian man and woman with a ballot in one hand and a machete in the other and say, it's your lucky day to vote? I don't know the answer to that. There's no doubt they're complicit. But but how complicit would be based on things that I don't know the answers to? All right. Well, how complicit are we in the actions of the military-industrial complex? Unbelievably complicit. Ignorant. Ignorant of its danger. So... We either get, we either come to grips with it, and we handle it, and we address it. Well, let, let, let me stop you there. Now, you ready? Can you be ignorant and complicit, or does ignorance forgive your complicity? Uh, until October seventh happens here, I don't know. But uh, lastly, change the topic real quick. Uh, it'd be great if you could get Ellen Weaver on the program to talk about um, her fight in Colombia right now to get. Uh, a grip on these teachers unions that are pushing um, this transgender and homosexual propaganda in our little children through books. Um, she's fighting a good fight, and I'd like to see you get her on so she can make her case. I appreciate it, Thank, Thank you. you. I, I actually thought yesterday, Rev and I did another podcast yesterday, and I thought about Ellen, you know, as a, she'd be a good podcast guest. Because I don't know what the radio, the, the radio is a different experience. I mean, I think Rev will agree to this. I'll say up close, uh, excuse me, I'll say DeSantis sounded more believable than he looks. That's weird. I don't have any idea why. But when I watch Ron DeSantis say exactly what he said over the radio, it just sounded more intimate. It sounded more believable. Radio is an intimate experience. The majority of you are probably in your car going somewhere or, or in your office I mean, it's, you're, you're kind of intimate. You're there by yourself. Your radio is riding along with you. It's your friend. Um, there's certain programming methodologies that work on radio that don't work so well in other forums and mediums. And I think to get Ellen in a studio and try to take a break every nine minutes for six minutes or 11 minutes for six minutes is going to be unfair to her train of thought and staying consistently trying to explain, I think, a podcast. Is where we could really delve into that and then kind of get in the weeds about, you know, some of the resistance you're running into, some of the accomplishments you've made, 
without, you know, um, hey, we got to take a break. Josh is giving me the break sign. I mean, that that's the business of radio. I mean, it's worked for a long, 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 long time and never underestimate radio. I have found that out. You know what? I'm not. I'm not a former lieutenant governor. I'm a radio show host. I mean, that's kind of wild that there are far more radio show hosts than there are former lieutenant governors. But when I hear people throw my name around, and it happens occasionally, there's a guy that hosts that radio show. That damn hard. He stirs him up. You know what I mean? He won't let it be. He's always got a good, you know, he tells him that stuff just to try to drum up them ratings. <laughs> I hear that a lot. It's just never, hey, remember are when he wrong? voted? Remember, well, remember when he voted to settle that dispute about the congressional district? I mean, there's never any mention of that. He's got that damn radio show. He stirs all that stuff up. Gets everybody ginned up and fired up and try to get. <laughs> I mean, people is... don't talk to you about your purple robe you used yeah, to wear? Well, I mean, I don't even know where that is. Mm. I really don't. Don't have any idea where it is. Um, Andre probably got it to add his collection <laughs> of purple robes since he's got a, a, an array of purple robes. No, but but I, I think Jim's on to something. We need to contact and communicate with Ellen Weaver and, and suggest she comes in and sits down for an extended conversation and you do that via be a podcast. And the perfect example of that is I haven't heard about what he was even talking about. So is there something she's embroiled in? She's fighting the good fight? Well, is I mean, that what the, we're saying? The, the liberals say, well, I mean, there's nothing to see here. I mean, they're not trying to indoctrinate young kids with transgenderism and, you know, so, some of these confusions, but they are. They absolutely are. I mean, you know, ed- education, and I'm not saying every teacher is a liberal. I don't believe that. But the educational lobby and the educational advocacy agency has become extremely liberal, and it's a little bit in your face. And parental involvement is in debate. Uh, parental notification is in debate. Uh, and unless we engage, and Ellen's tried to engage and and, and fight the good fight in regards to K through 12 um, education, we're going to eventually um, lose that battle. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We'll try to do that. I'll try to iron out. Uh, I'll get in touch with Ellen and see if she'll agree to come and sit down with us on a on a podcast. And the reason that that some of these things are more prominent in South Carolina is the General Assembly is so influential. In South Carolina, I mean, in my world, if I lived in a perfect world, Jay, Mike, or Philip don't want to hear this, so if they don't show up tomorrow, you'll know why. I mean, I think the General Assembly has too much influence. And I think some of that influence should be formed out to the governor's office. Part of the influence I think the governor should have is the ability to appoint a superintendent of education. If the governor had more influence in how our state is governed and the governor handpicked a superintendent of education, you advance an agenda. When, when the governor is in a debate and you ask that governor about education and they say, well, I don't do that. The General Assembly deals with the superintendent of education. Well, who are they? I don't know any of those people making big decisions on behalf of education in our state. So I have always advocated for a stronger governor. And I've told Jay and Philip and Mike that I believe the executive branch should be more co-equal than it is um, today. But but we live in a state that is legislatively dominated. Uh, I had kind of an up-close-and-personal look at where the uh, the political, you ready? The political yank resides. Um, who's got the yank? That's what we'd always ask. Who's got the yank? Uh, you better go see him or you better go see her. They'll stop that thing. I'm telling you. But you, you like to say that the only office that was less powerful than the governor. Yeah. I mean, I, I resided in the only office that was less powerful than the government than the governor. Um, <laughs> the, the two most listless politicians in South Carolina have the nicest offices. Uh, <laughs> that would be the governor and 
and the lieutenant governor had a couch in my office that belonged to John C. Calhoun. A picture in my office from the museum, from the South Carolina State Museum. He looked like Dracula. Uh, <laughs> I told people I was into some of those long breaks, take a nap on that couch. I ain't taking a nap on John C. Calhoun's <laughs> couch. You might, but I'm not. I'm going to sit in the parking lot of McDonald's, and when they finish all that nonsense they'll finish, they'll call us back and, and ready to vote on Amazon or whatever it was. It's one of those um, longer, longer sessions. Enjoy your day, right? It's, yep. the, end of, it's uh, the end of the show. We're at the end of the rope. Enjoy your day. And we'll continue this nonsense tomorrow.